Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. High fly ball hit toward left. Gurriel going back at the track, at the wall. It's gone. Swing and a shot hammer toward right center field. That's down for a hit. One run scores. Kisner on second on his way to third. He's got the green light. Edmund on his way to third. He'll slide in with a triple. Yank fair ball down the left field line. Here comes Arenado to score. Contreras on his way to second. Throw off target. It's three to nothing. Swing drive. Hammer deep right. That's a grand slam. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. That is more what it's supposed to look like, Alex. That was the offense that we were sold going into this season. That was the pitching, eh, kind of, that we were sold going into this season. Well, it was Jake Woodford, so we were sold that. Yeah, Alex, I, thought he'd be. I think there is one player in particular that you can look at with what he did yesterday, nearly hitting for the cycle. By Taylor the way, cycle, Motter. Nope. Woohoo! And it's Tommy Edmond. Oh. Tommy Edmond going into yesterday was batting 240. He had an OPS of 640 on the season. Both of those numbers are not good. After yesterday, he is now batting 275 with an on-base percentage of 365 and an OPS of 800. His OPS went up by 160 points in one day, and his batting average went up by 35 points in one day's worth of work. Alex, if ever there was a reminder of how early we are in the season, even though it feels bad, it is what Tommy Edmond was able to do yesterday. And him nearly hitting for the cycle, getting him back on track, and now putting him like 15% above league average offensively for the season with basically one excellent day's worth of work. Yeah, this is uh, this is how you make your offense looks a little bit better with an outing like that. And be great if everybody had their own Madison Bumgarner, but the problem is everyone has Vince Velasquez is when it pitches against the Cardinals. But look, for Tommy Edmond and for this offense, you're right. It, uh, it did prove to you last night or yesterday <laughs> afternoon that you still got a lot of games to go and I know everybody was panicking. We in here, we kept our cool. We told people to just calm down on the text line and stop getting so worked up about this team, but still not sitting here acting like, yep. Now they're going to be one of the best teams in the national league off of just that. There's still a lot that can happen. You're still going to see the best out of certain players like a Tommy Edmond who started off slow. I would imagine you're going to see more of that from certain players like a Dylan Carlson, maybe a little bit more of that like Brendan Donovan was at the beginning of the season. But yesterday did shed some optimism in what felt like a bleak homestand for the Cardinals. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with it. Tommy Edmond was able to do because he did from both sides of the plate. Because I knew we always knew, you know, he can hit left-handers, but he's able to do it somewhat on the right side, or excuse me, on the left side as well. And that's the most encouraging sign because he's been off to a slow start against right-handed pitching. I, I, I think that's kind of the 
outlook for what you expect from this offense, being able to do damage where they're hitting for extra base hits, hitting some home runs, showing the power. Like, that's what we expect from this offense. Frankly, it's kind of what you saw in that first series against the Toronto Blue Jays that just hasn't really translated much since. So it was good to see the offense get things turned around. I, I kind of feel like I've said it two, three times now already. That felt like the game worse the jumping off point for the offense. I've said that once in every series so far this year. I, I, I think the difference, though, Except now. the Braves, because they got swept by the Braves. Was that there were still guys struggling in those other games. Like, the game where Arnado had the big double. You still had Contreras that was kind of uh, behind the eight ball. You had Edmund that was still kind of going through his struggles. Uh, but now you're seeing two of those guys. Really, the two guys, I think, that have mostly been struggling. Donovan's been playing well since then. Uh, the two guys that have mostly been struggling are actually the three. Edmund had a really big game, single shy of the cycle. Sorry, I was going to throw in another name. Jordan Walker. I was going to throw in Walker. This is what's – Tanner is my head when I'm trying to decide if I want to start an argument with my wife. The process process was working. Well, that's easy. I just do it. The process was working. We're getting there. Tommy Edmund was a single away from the cycle. He looks like he's turning things around. You look at Jordan Walker, who had been, I think, what, one for his last 16 or 0 for his last 16. He comes up with two hits yesterday, and he actually lifted the ball up in the air, which was a good sign. Uh, and then you also had the game from Wills Contreras. Again, another big game for him, too, for three. So I think you're starting to see three of these bats that had been struggling during these Cardinals offensive woes. They're starting to wake up a bit. And, and the most important bat to me that's waking up is the Contreras bat. If Contreras continue to struggle in that five spot, I think you're going to continue to see the St. Louis Cardinals offense struggle. But he is starting to wake up and he's starting to hit the ball. He had been hitting the ball hard, but he's really hitting the ball hard now. And he's starting to pull the ball much more. People love uh, batting average here in St. Louis, right? No, we no, love Will Bacon yeah. and FIP and yeah. XBA. I get I get in trouble for all of those things. So let's keep it simple. Here's the list of the Cardinals hitters that are batting above at or above 270 get on the rid season. Get of your stupid analytics. Nolan Gorman, who's batting 315, by the way, has the best batting average on the team, which is just mm. remarkable given how often he was supposed to strike out. In, to honestly, Ferrari how much five. he does strike out still this year. He has 16 strikeouts on the season already. Paul Goldschmidt batting 315. <laughs> Nolan Arenado batting 295. Tyler O'Neill, surprisingly enough, batting 275. Wilson Contreras right there as well, along with Tommy Edmond. And then Brendan Donovan is batting 270 on the I season. didn't hear you say Alec Burleson's name. I did not. He's hitting for so much power that it doesn't really matter. His batting average is not terrible. It's 250. That's why we're moving around the two spots. He's hitting a t- for a ton of power yeah. as well. Tyler O'Neill's better. Just say it. One of the names that I didn't mention was Lars Newpar, who is getting on base 57% of the time so far this season since coming back <laughs> from God. the injured list. When we say that this offense is going to get better, this is why. Because you have guys that are hitting for average. You also have players in that list that I just mentioned that are also hitting for power. Like Gorman has a slugging percentage of 650 on the season. You have a slugging percentage of about 500 from Paul Goldschmidt. You're not getting any real power yet from Nolan Arenado. That's going to change. Like, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think Nolan Arenado is going to hit 30 home runs this year. Why? Because he always finishes the year with 30 home runs and 100 RBI. You can look at the back of the baseball card. That's what it is every single season. Wilson Contreras finally is starting to hit for that power that we knew that he was going to bring to the table. Alec Burleson has that power. Lars Newbar has already shown that power. This offense, why I have said, yes, it is frustrating, but I think it's going to be okay, is because of what we're watching over the last couple of days. The offense broke Madison Bumgarner and ended his career. Did you see that? They just got DFA'd him. Did did they? Yeah. Somebody just, uh, Nick, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, Pierre Coro, 
who covers the Diamondbacks, sources left-hander Madison Bumgarner has been designated for assignment by the would Diamondbacks. You? Hell yeah, I would. Would you really? Absolutely not. Did you okay. see that guy? I was about to say, are you serious? The only thing he had going for him was potentially getting into a brawl with Wilson Contreras. Even that he would have lost. I mean, oh, I don't know about that. Honest. This man this man looks like he throws bales of hay in the offseason. He does. That's literally his off-season training yeah. program. Brian and, Brian Sutter did that too, and that man was a, a nightmare to play against. So yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I, I have no interest in Mad Bone. That Remember guy is when terrible. People were actually excited about him. Well, I consider I convinced Last myself year? that Patrick Corbin would be yep. great. Well, no, you can sit. You convinced yourself that Juan yeah. Soto would be great, and taking and on the terrible Patrick contract yeah. would be worth it to give up less way, in the deal for Juan. How's Soto? that guy not been DFA'd? Who? Uh, yeah, Corbin. Well, because their team's well, terrible, yeah. and they're like, ah, give us innings. Who's, your, no, who's, the, who's the projected first overall pick? You got to lose hard for him. Yeah. Mm, Jim. When Jim. you were watching yesterday, final thing here on that game, T-Bone, yeah. saw this tweet from you. Yeah, at T-Bone really well. ESPN. Smash that like button. Hit that follow button. Let's get up to 1,000 followers. You're at 7:35. We're almost oh, there, man. buddy. Okay, can you guys follow our yeah. our, our, our guy T? I'm actually gonna unfollow at T Bone 101 ESPN. Let's get him to a thousand followers by the end of the show today. T Bone 101 ESPN. That is all. You know what? Anybody listening right now, unfollow BK and put those follows yeah. on T Bone. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. I definitely have more positive vibes than him. That's fine. Uh, but don't read my latest tweet. Though. Again, at T Bone 101 ESPN. Here's what he said. Wouldn't it be great if Major League Baseball had a mercy rule like the World Baseball Classic? This game would be over and we could go about our days. Instead, we have to watch more meaningless innings and probably see a position player or two pitch, which never happened, by the way, yesterday. Yeah, it would really T-Bone, defend your ridiculous stance on a half-baked day What do you mean ridiculous here? Defend your Happy stance. 420 to any of you that are celebrating. Yeah, oh, happy 420. Nobody Were really you celebrating wanted... yesterday? No, no. That was T-Bone's half-baked idea. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I just think that's one of those scenarios where you can get right. Re- you don't have to watch those innings at this point. You're saving arms. I mean, Arizona has to go. I don't know if they're in San Diego or they had to fly back home yesterday. And they could just save arms for when they get ready to take on the San Diego Padres. If the Cardinals had to be in Seattle today and start like a four game set instead they of don't. having a day off. I know they don't, but I'm just making a point here. It would have been better for them to rather than throwing Cabrera in a pointless inning or throwing uh, Hicks in a pointless inning. They kind of needed that. Well, they could have done that in the seventh inning. The game was already out of hand. So I, I just think it would have been easier. It would have been better. I think it's better just instead of having to sit there and we have to sit there and watch those innings, just end the game in the seventh inning. You got to see the baseball you want. You're, you're not really sticking around for those three innings of blowout baseball. And for the people that were replying to my tweet very generously. Yeah. Can we go through and we're some saying, of those? We're saying... Uh, you're not a baseball fan. Um, let me just tell you, you're probably that person that leaves in a 1-1 game in the eighth inning so you can, quote-unquote, beat the traffic. That, that's Alex. That's absolutely me. I said I'll listen to the rest of the way. Can I read some of these? These are fantastic. Please. Uh, why do you hate baseball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously not a baseball fan, so don't speak about baseball. That's why I've been known as a hockey guy. I can maybe understand it for TV, but if I'm driving hours away for a game, I would be pretty disappointed if I didn't get to see the full game. Can I get one? Yeah. Nah, bruh. <laughs> when I was a kid from upstate Illinois with family, we didn't have any money. We got to go to one game a year. I remember savoring every pitch, hating every out, knowing we were one tip cl- tick closer to the game being over. For those kids, at least, please give them the full game. I- can I get another one in? We got to do it for the kids. We got to do it for the kids. Can I get one more in? Please. 
Hey, Tanner, why don't we just get a courtesy runner, have ten fielders, and get a big yellow ball, and make them slow pitch it and call it softball? Now that's just ridiculous. Okay, no, that's Your take ridiculous. is ridiculous. Here's another one. Yeah, it's this like is tweet. stupid. By the, by the way, can I, can I real this quick say like, something? Can we have the mean tweets music playing underneath us? Can, by the way, real quick, can I say something? If you were upset about me wanting to end a game in the seventh inning because of, it's a blowout and it's like, in this case, 14 to 4, I think Sorry, it was. Sorry, your feelings hurt. These people games, are just responding to your half idea. Or, or, the, or there are games that are like 20 to 2, and instead Look, of ending man. in the seventh, it's the pros, we got to watch it. Look, Why the hell did everybody like seven inning doubleheaders, Look, huh? Look, man. I have ideas at home that I think sound great, but I know if I say it out loud, my wife will think I'm insane. I thought there'd be more support. I'm disappointed. Actually, there was one that just tweeted it and said, that's an unfollow. Yeah, that just happened. It's not going to help our... Uh, yeah, wait, you're, you're going down to 700 now, Tanner. Get from, yours in. From Justin. This would actually be so stupid on so many different levels. A lot of so. Imagine having a perfect game through seven innings. Then the game ends when your team scores another run to go up 10-0. You don't get to go into the record books. T-Bone, <laughs> shut up. Well, they should huh? just make it a perfect game then. Shut up, T-Bone. Wasn't it, wasn't you it, don't it love baseball. I, it didn't count in the seven innings. I know. I know. And it should have. Wasn't it kind of mad bum who, coincidentally enough, got DFA'd about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Threw a no-hitter. I think it was a no-hitter in a seven-inning doubleheader, and it didn't count. It should count. T-Bone, if you cancel the game after seven innings, Tommy Edmund can't hit for the cycle. Yeah, and I replied to that tweet and said he had a chance, and he didn't do it. Can I? And do we really care if he gets it off a position player? Can I give an honest answer to this? Yeah, you're in. I actually don't mind the idea. I don't either. Are you kidding me? I can cancel the game in the seventh inning if it's over? I'm in. I mean, Valley Sports, I mean, like Valley 10 Sports didn't even want to cover that last inning because they unplugged everything. <laughs> they, unplugged. they had to cover it from Ballpark Village. <laughs> Yesterday, we unplugged our transmitter, and then Valley Sports Midwest yeah, unplugged everything at Bush Stadium. BT unplugged the uh, power cord, and he said, this is it. We're good. Let's head on BT to Seattle. BT was like, mercy roll. Boop. That was definitely Fred Bird, right? Like, we can all agree. Fred oh, Bird yeah, was like, I've, I've seen enough. Fred Bird was ready to go I say home. it's Illuminati. With Alex Ferrario. Led by Tanner Fred Hendrickson. Who hates baseball. I'm Brandon Kylie. Please give Tanner Hendrickson a follow on Twitter at T-Bone101ESPN. We got to get him up to a thousand follows by the end of the day. Otherwise, T-Bone's going to eat this piece of paper that's in front of me. Coming up next, the that's Oakland A's. Help. They're technically still a baseball team, but very soon they're going to be the Las Vegas Aces. Maybe we'll see. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It is such uh, an, an eyesore that one of the 30 major league teams, A, has a roster that looks like the Oakland A's, has a ballpark that is falling apart when their their brother, I guess, or sister, you could say, the San Francisco Giants, is right across the bay selling out, unbelievable ballpark, crown jewel in the sport. It makes absolutely no sense. They're not going to put a competitive product on the field until they get a new ballpark. So this is where we are. And it just it didn't work out. It ran its course. And I am thrilled to wake up this morning to hear that Las Vegas is going to be a new market in our sport. 
Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. You can follow Tanner on Twitter at T-Bone101ESPN. The Oakland A's are likely no more. If you missed the news late last night, the A's ownership group has spent more than a billion dollars because they've got a bunch of money to throw around, of course, as we've known for all these years, what? to purchase the site where they are going to be building a new stadium in Las Vegas for... The A's, whenever they move to Las Vegas. Guys, this has been the worst kept secret in Major League Baseball for years. We've all known now for a long time, you, me, Tanner, and everybody listening right now, that the Oakland A's weren't going to stay in Oakland and that they were eventually going to be moving to Las Vegas. I think this is embarrassing for Major League Baseball. I completely disagree with Greg Amsinger. I understand why he says that. And like when they move to Las Vegas... I think they're going to be pretty successful. I think Major League Baseball will be a smashing success in Las Vegas because everything that has moved to Las Vegas has been pretty darn successful out there. The NHL has been. We've seen it. Uh, the NBA is eventually going to be there. The Raiders have been successful. It's going to work. XFL hasn't worked, but... Touche. It's okay. But the Oakland A's not working out in Oakland is their own fault. They have not been willing to invest in this team, and now they're spending more than a billion dollars... To purchase the site and to build the stadium when they move out to Las Vegas. If they had simply done that exact same thing in Oakland, this team would be working in Oakland. Look across the bay in San Francisco. We can see it with the Giants. It has worked there. When the Oakland A's are good, people support that team, man. It's super frustrating to me to watch this happen in a really good market, a really good sports market. First with the Raiders, now with the Oakland A's. I get why they're doing it because they want the lush environment of being out in Las Vegas where there is a ton of money that is getting thrown around for new pro sports teams. But man, this is disappointing to see this go down this way. It is. And we were talking about this yesterday off air about the success that we've seen over years in terms of great players that the athletics have had. And I just went back and looked at their seasons from 2012 to 2020 They were in first or second place all but three years, and those three years were when they missed the playoffs. But think of the talent that they had on those rosters in that 10-year stretch that they opted not to keep and opted not to pay. And, I mean, you could start with the manager, Bob Melvin, who won manager of the year twice with them. Then they let him go. And then for all of the players, whether it was Olsen and Chapman or whether it was Liam Hendricks, and they started trading players away. I mean, there were times in that stretch that you looked at it and said, man, Oakland could be a team that – could go on a little bit of a run, which would be awesome. And then all of a sudden, it's, nope, ship them out. We're going to start it all over from here. And again, I understand how this works. It's a business. And the people that own it, they want to make more money. You go to Vegas, you make more money. And then you get the expansion deal on top of it. This is how it goes. But it's frustrating when you see a team that has all of that talent and then they say, nope, screw it, doesn't work for us, we're going to move on from it. I mean, the Pirates were this team, too. Yeah, it's infuriating because it reminds me so much of what the Rams situation was of in terms of, you know, basically falsely saying, yeah, let's build a new stadium, let's build a new stadium. And if you read the uh, article in The Athletic Day, it was Evan Drellis, and I can't remember who the other one was that was a part of that article. But all those were just pipe dreams, essentially, that they, that the Oakland A's had tried. They They never had any process in terms of really trying to build those up. They were basically like, Hey, if you give us like the grand deal, we will do it. And the city of Oakland should never have done any of those deals. The idea of a waterfront ballpark was nice, but again, it was outlandish of what in terms the Oakland A's were asking for. And the part that's most infuriating to me is, I mean, yes, they had support when they were very good baseball teams. And they always would say, you know, we're a low market team. We don't have that kind of money to be able to 
keep the keep these talented players with us. That's why we have to trade off those guys like the Olsons and the Chapmans. But then they're going to use a billion dollars of their own money to go out there and build a stadium in Las Vegas. That's the part that's infuriating to me because it's clear you had money to spend on your team. And I'm not saying they had to be a top five payroll in baseball, but you could have a payroll make your team uh, just at least suitable. I mean, you look at that team right now that they've got fielded. They're a joke. They are an absolute joke and would lose to most AAA baseball teams. That's how bad they are on the field right now. And they were just doing that just to help solidify their argument of, oh, look, we've got no fans in the stands. Well, yeah, why would I show up to watch garbage cans out there playing baseball? It, it, it's an absolute shame what's happening to the city of Oakland. Somebody texted in and said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. It has nothing to do with building the team and everything to do with politics. Yeah, I can understand if the city's not going to want to pay for the stadium, but if there's a enticing product you kind of force the hand of that. I mean, Calgary Flames right now are that way to where they don't want to pay for a new stadium for Calgary, and Calgary doesn't say, well, if you're not going to give us a new stadium, then screw it. We're going to trade all these pieces away and just be a bad team until we move out. No, they continue to put a competitive team. Arizona is the exact same way. Like, you can state that, yeah, they don't want to put any funds into it because it's all political, but if the but if the product on the field is enticing enough for people to want to go watch it and see the success, then they'll figure out a way to keep going. Yeah, I I think this is kind of twofold. One, like there is absolutely a political backdrop to all of this that's taking place right now. No doubt about it. The state of California is highly against having publicly funded stadiums. That is a part of all of these stories that are taking place right now in, in California. Like a, there's, there's no way, ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's part of it. And also... The Oakland A's organization is about to spend a billion (laughs) dollars to purchase the land in which the new stadium will be built in Las Vegas. If that money was repurposed towards a stadium in California, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. If they had simply used that money to stay where they are currently located. So, yeah, politics is part of this. So is the ownership group in Oakland. I just went through like their previous teams to look at what the lineup could be in Oakland this year if they had simply kept their homegrown talent or guys that were on the roster in the last few years. Catcher, Sean Murphy. First base, Matt Olson. Second base, Jerkson Profar. Third base, Matt Chapman. Shortstop, Marcus Simeon. Left field, Mark Canna. Uh, Center field, Ramon Laureano. He's the only guy from this list that is still currently on the roster. Right field, Robbie Grossman. A one, two, three in the rotation. This isn't great, but it's a rotation nonetheless. Frankie Montes, Chris Bassett, Sean Manaya. They've also got really good relievers that they've had over the years. Even the last couple of seasons, they've had guys that are really good coming out of their bullpen. This is a team that should be competitive right now, but they chose willingly to tear down to the studs to make sure that this is the way that everything went. They don't want to spend any money on the roster right now, and they didn't want to spend any money to stay in Oakland. I think this is a massive, massive black eye for Major League Baseball. Same way that it was for the Rams when they left uh, St. Louis in the NFL. I think this, that is also the case right now with Oakland. That being said, what do you think is next? Because this isn't it. Like It's not just going to be, hey, Oakland's moving to Las Vegas. There's no more movement in Major League Baseball. I think eventually baseball is going to expand. Agreed. I think one of those teams appears to be headed for Salt Lake City, which I was unprepared for. I don't know if you saw that story over the weekend, but Salt Lake City is like fully preparing to make a bid for a major league baseball jazz owner. Right. That's trying to do. I don't remember who it was specifically, but yeah, they, they, they have put everything in place now. 
uh, to be ready to go for that. And it sounds like Major League Baseball is receptive to the idea. I think Tampa eventually will be either moved or will get a new stadium. Is there anything else movement-wise that you guys are anticipating at this point for Major I, League Baseball? I, so I, I agree Tampa's either going to get a new stadium, which I think they're getting close to something, but, I mean, we heard that about Oakland for a long time, or they'll be moved to Montreal. I, I think that's one of the two options for Tampa Bay. I, I do think Salt Lake City will become a team that ends up getting that. It'll either be them or Portland, but Portland's really kind of died down in terms of interest. The other one for me, I, I do think Nashville's going to get that's a team. That's the one for me. Uh, Nashville, they have... Uh, I can't remember what the term is, but like uh, Dave Dombrowski technically works for somebody that's trying to get Nashville there. Same with uh, Don Man- Manningly. Those two are guys that are going to probably be like, if Nashville gets a team, Dombrowski's going to be the, probably the president of baseball ops, and Manningly's probably going to be the manager. Like they, they have had some serious movement in terms of trying to get a team to Nashville because I, I don't think Major League Baseball would expand just one team. I, I think if they do it, it will be at minimum two. And I, I think the two favorites are Salt Lake City, which, again, I agree, did not see that coming at all. And the second one would be Nashville. I, I actually think Nashville would potentially be first because they've had so much momentum for yeah. a handful of years now at this the point. The Montreal one's intriguing, too, which, again, I mean— That goes back to Tampa Bay, potentially, because yeah. there's been some talk about splitting some time there. Especially with the success they're seeing with Toronto. You get another team up in Canada and build a little bit that way. But I'm with you. If there were two favorites for me, it would be Nashville and it would be Salt Lake City with the news of Salt Lake City coming what out. What do you think comes first, just if we were guessing? This is I pure would... speculation, of course. Do you think it's Nashville, Salt Lake City, or Tampa moving? I think Tampa moving because yeah. it sounds like Rob Manfred has been saying all along like we have to figure out these two teams before we can expand. And they just checked off Oakland. I think Tampa like so Oakland's not going to get there to 2027. I think there's going to be some sort of resolution on Tampa Bay within the next two years. Would be where my do you guess. think they go? Montreal. I think I they actually. Know, I think man. they actually build something in Tampa. Because Rob move Manfred to a different had, spot. Yeah, I can't remember where They're it is. They're in St. Pete got, right now. I mean, yeah. it, it's entirely possible they just actually are in Tampa Bay now. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Um, I, I think they're going to stay there because Rob Banford, like, I mean, we can all agree, Miami's been a failure, too. They built a stadium there, though. Like, Rob Banford does not want to give up on Miami. He thinks there's still a market for two teams in the state of Florida. So I think they're going to keep Tampa there and just get a new stadium through. That that I think that's what's going to occur. I, I think if Montreal gets a team, it would be another expansion team going to Montreal. Coming up next... Jordan Bennington made his life more difficult during the regular season, not just this year, but for years to come. That's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the president of hockey operations. We'll let you hear what Doug Armstrong had to say about that next year on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien counter stories out there from all over the world and the beauty of it is that i bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe download and subscribe to uap on any of the major podcasting platforms and you can also find it on uappodcast.com we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn I've had some frank conversations about what life's going to be like for him for the next two years. It's not going to be easy. They perceive that that he's a he's a gainable target. You're going to have to live with it. Like you've created it, 
you own it, you enjoy it, well, you got to live with it now. And so there's going to be the extra bump. It's going to be the extra whack on the glove. It's going to be the extra little talk in the, in the crease. And it's not going to be when the game's 2-1. It's going to be when the game's 4-1. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Doug Armstrong over the weekend talking about Jordan Bennington and what his life is going to be like in future years in the NHL. Alex, we talked a lot about this over the course of the last couple of years, but especially this season with Jordan Bennington. Some will call it antics. Some will call it fire. Others will go with emotion. Whatever you want to label it as, Jordan Bennington shows his emotions while he is on the ice. That is not the case for a lot of goaltenders, probably most goaltenders around the league. Alex, when you think about what this is going to mean for him and for the Blues in future seasons, do you agree with Doug Armstrong's assessment that he has made his own life a little bit more difficult because of the way that he plays? He absolutely has, and uh, there's no denying that. I mean, if you don't believe me, go watch the Minnesota Wild game where he lost his cool with Ryan Hartman and then watch the next game that they played the Minnesota Wild because teams know. Teams just know that's Jordan Bennington. And when it's on national television, whether it's TNT or ESPN, those teams know. It's like, hey, if we get into the mind of Jordan Bennington, he's going to lose his cool. And this is when we can pounce on him. And yeah, that is the that's the burden you've put on yourself now. If you're Jordan Bennington, he obviously in some circumstances thrives with it. And other times it gets out of hand. Um, whether it's him flinging his stick at a player like he did in the San Jose Sharks game or bumping into the other goaltender like the New York Islanders or the Penguins or the Wild, that's him now. And, I mean, Exhibit A is going to be Ryan Hartman. Every time Minnesota plays St. Louis, Ryan Hartman is going to be chirping Jordan Bennington. And the hardest part for him is when the games are going to be out of hand. And what I think Doug Armstrong meant by saying, like, your life's going to be tough for the next couple of years. Not so much because of these guys chirping you, because Jordan Bennington's probably been hearing that since he's been in the minors. It's going to be games might not be as pretty as you think they are. And another quote that Army had in that that, that uh, media availability was saying, we need our team to perform better in Jordan Bennington because his numbers can't improve with all these backdoor tap-ins, but our team can't improve unless Jordan Bennington improves his numbers. So it's a double-edged sword right now, and everything he's saying is what Jonathan Quick did in his entire career with the LA Kings. The difference is the L.A. Kings had better defense in front of Jonathan Quick, but Jonathan Quick knew you're going to get the extra ice shavings in your face. You're going to get the extra hacks post whistle and you're going to have to deal with it because that's who you are now. Yeah, I I think teams are going to have targeted him and I think they're going to continue to target him because I, I think they do see it as they can really get under his skin. And and it's not so much of a worry for me, I guess, in terms of if a game's a blowout in terms of, say, the Blues are down four to one and that's occurring. I mean, it wouldn't matter if he ends up getting suspended like he did for one of his antics. Like then, it costs the team potentially in in the season. The one for me that would be worrisome is if the Blues are up three to nothing, and then teams really start to target him because if they know they can get into the mind of Jordan Bennington and can get get under his skin, all it takes is him having some antics. Next thing you know, they get a goal on a power play, and then all of a sudden momentum has completely shifted, and it's all in the undoing of your own goaltender. And, and that's really the biggest concern for me with the Jordan Bennington thing. And I think Doug Armstrong's right, but I will say this: I, I think. For the most part, Bennington has been able to control himself in scenarios when the Blues are winning. We, I think, if I'm not mistaken, most of the antics we have seen has when they have been down. When they've and, been blowouts. And, and the, those ones, like, yes, I prefer not to see Bennington having those antics on the ice. But it's not a game in terms of, hey, all of a sudden momentum has shifted in favor of that team because Bennington Bennington's antics. It's already been in their favor, and that's the biggest thing for me. I kind of go the other way with that. Um and the reason why is because it, it goes back to the comparison that you made yesterday, Alex. I think it was a really good one, a fair one. 
it feels kind of Jack Flaherty like. Yeah. In which when things are going poorly for him, sometimes he gets into his own head and it goes even worse as a result. Or he's hitting the eject button on the game where he's like, I'm mad. I don't like what's going on around me. And whether it's his own fault, he's mad at himself. He's mad at somebody else on his team. He's mad that the defense is not uh, holding up their end of the bargain. And you're getting these backdoor tap-ins and it's making his life more miserable. And his numbers are reflecting what is taking place in front of him, whatever the explanation is. And I'm not saying it's an excuse. It is an explanation. I think sometimes he takes it to the highest degree and then lashes out as a result. We also got this on the text line, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Guys, I find this interesting because when Bennington first came up, it felt like he was a flatliner. Nothing got under his skin. Now it almost feels as if he is looking for something to lose his cool about. I don't know if he's looking for stuff to lose his cool about. I do think Bennington, though, is one of those players that plays on the edge. Yeah, you have to. And when he first came up, his edge was nobody believes in me. I'm about to go prove to all of you that I'm the best mother bleeper to ever do this. Mm -hmm. Like that was his mindset. And then he did it. He won the cup. And so now you've got to, it's like the Michael Jordan documentaries, right? Where he's, he's making up these perceived slights where the Utah jazz, it was in the, uh, the coach was in the same restaurant as him and didn't say hi, or uh, they're going to cover me with this guy. They think that Claxton's going to be the next dude. Like, no way. It, all of these things are perceived slights by Michael. They, they weren't real, but to him, they were. And so for Bennington, I think he does some of that in his own head as well, where he's creating these mind games and sometimes it goes a little bit too far. And that's where I get critical of Benner is I think sometimes it takes him out of his the, the right mental space. And so I, I will be curious to see what this ends up looking like over the next couple of seasons, because he does need to be, be responding in the right way. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I saw the same text. And, and I mean, it's very noted that this past offseason, Bennington told Jr. in that piece on The Athletic, I got to find another gear to get me on that level, that competitive level, because he lost it for a couple of years. That's why the regular season wasn't so good. And when he lost his job with Ville Husso, he even said, like, I went to a bad place for a little bit there. This to me is the edge that I believe Jordan Bennington is trying to create for himself, not to be a guy that everyone looks at as, oh, he's got antics and be a problem. I, I, I view it as I, I, I think he wants to be a villain. I, I think Jordan Bennington looks at this and says, yeah, I want the other teams to hate me. I mean, he's we, Draymond. He's Draymond. He's Wilson Contreras in terms of you like to have that edge. He's Brad Marchand with the Boston Bruins. You want the other team to hate you so that you, you can get into their head. But that's the part that Jordan Bennington's got to figure out. You've got to beat them at their game before they beat you at your game. And this is where it goes back to the Draymond comparison of Draymond is now hurting his team. Absolutely. He just got suspended, and I don't think the Warriors are going to be able to overcome that. Like, I don't think they can win without him. And if they are not able to have him on the court, and this is not the first time that it has happened with Draymond where he got suspended in a massive playoff game for his team. They lost an NBA Finals in part because Draymond was suspended, I believe. So... When you're looking at this and you're looking at what Jordan Bennington's importance is for the St. Louis Blues, I'm not saying he's going to be out here getting suspended regularly, but it's that same thing where he can take himself out of the game instead of being physically out like Draymond is, mentally sometimes. I do think he can essentially eject himself from a game. And during the regular season, that's one thing. When you get into the postseason, though, that's when we know Bennington typically locks in. If teams are able to get under his skin like this in the future – that is where things get a little dicey. Yeah, and, and I mean, just 
conversations that I've had with guys who have played the position, uh, Mike McKenna, Darren Pang, I mean, talk to guys in the locker room. It's a lonely spot and a position to be in. Like you're on an island by yourself and somebody texts in and said, yeah, but it'd be nice to see guys stand up for Jordan Bennington. I, I can understand that sentiment, but sometimes... I, I believe the teammates look at it and says, well, this is Bennington's fight. We're going to let him go with it Absolutely. here rather than us entice this even more. And I believe Bennington prefers it that way. You don't want to turn it into everybody loses their cool because that's when you lose your edge on the ice. If Bennington's the one that's going to lose his cool, okay, we just need him to back it up the rest of the game. And there have been more times this season where it felt like Bennington backed it up than I felt like Bennington lost it. The Pittsburgh Penguins game is the only one for me that I can remember, at least this season, where Bennington lost his cool and couldn't back it up. Because when he had the thing with Jason Zucker, they scored two more goals on him, and then they were chirping him when he went to the bench. The Minnesota Wild one, he lost his cool because the game had already gotten out of hand. The San Jose Sharks, the New York Islanders one, that to me was Bennington trying to inspire a little bit of fire in his team there's there's two different ways to go about it but again if you're going to be the villain you got to back it up by the way speaking of great playoff goalies did you see what happened last night with Marc-Andre Fleury not good dude so the wild decided to go to Marc-Andre Fleury in net after their actual starter had an unbelievable game one for them against the Dallas Stars it was a bad decision like, there's no way to justify this after that game. He ended up giving up seven goals. They never had a chance. They were able to fight back briefly there. I think it was in the second period yeah, where they kind of made three. it close. But after that, it was just, it, it was over. It was over, and it was because Marc-Andre Fleury was a disaster in net for them. This has been a trend for him down the stretch. He lost the net in the month of April where he had a 3.4 goals against on average and an 890 save percentage. Alex, are we watching the beginning of the end of Marc-Andre Fleury? He's 38 years old. Right. Is this kind of the end of him being what we've known him to be the entirety of his career? Because it kind of went this way last year when he ended up in, in the net for the Blues. Yeah, I mean, he had to take the job from Cam Talbot because Cam Talbot had the yips against the Blues. And then, of course, uh, Fleury, he performed okay, but it wasn't enough to win. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen this Marc-Andre Fleury since Vegas. And even in Vegas, he wasn't playing he played 36 games when he had a 928 save percentage. But I mean, prior to that, it was 49 and a 905. Like right now, I think you're probably seeing the end of Marc-Andre Fleury, but it's been trending this direction the last couple of years. And it's not to say that he still can't come up with some big saves, but I think you're seeing the end of Marc-Andre Fleury relying on. I mean, there were multiple um, goals that were scored last night that on the broadcast, I think it was Brian Boucher or Kevin Weeks, one of the two, they said, yeah, Fleury's going to say he wants that one back. So you could tell yeah. that there were just some like breakaway chances, backhanded chances that I think he tried to do a poke check on a player who had a breakaway and they deked him out of it. I, I believe you're starting to see the end of Marc-Andre Fleury. I don't know how many years left he's got on one his more. contract, one more year. So it's not like I don't believe he's going to retire. I'm sure he'll come back one more season, but next year he might be a backup to Gustafson and then retire after that. He'll be a Hall of Famer, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The amount of wins, the amount of playoff. I think he's third most playoff appearances in NHL history. And then, of course, the, the Stanley Cup wins. I believe in the playoffs he has the most wins of any goaltender. Only goalies to be... There's only one, two, three, four, five goalies that have been um, inducted into the Hall of Fame over the last 30 years. It's tough. It's tough to get in, but if ever there was one, it'll, yeah, it'll it, be him. He will be, he'll Re- be on that Roberto list. Roberto Luongo just went in, mm-hmm. and if Luongo went in, who never won, Marc-Andre Fleury has well, to be in for the success. Cup, right? No, he never, he never won a cup. He got to one with Vancouver and lost to and, Boston. Well, he got to two. I think he got to one with Florida also. Somebody on a text line. 
All flowers eventually wilt. Coming up next, questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. Deep. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers. Brought to you by Insperity. Do HR issues have you boxed in? Expand your possibilities at Insperity.com. 399-9646 is the air cover service text line for questions and answers. This one comes from the 636. I can't say all of this, but talk about Shohei Otani. Female dog. Yep. Uh, okay, cool. We'll do that. That's unnecessary, though, to call us names. Earlier today, yeah. Jeff Passan was on ESPN, and he essentially said, if the Angels end up out of contention this year, Shohei Otani will be traded. He was definitive about it. Let's go. Dylan Carlson and prospects. This is not something we're going to do, right? Like oh, no. We can all just agree right now we will not get sucked in. Why? By the Shohei Otani sweepstakes. No, no, it'll happen. Why? The fast one would be the top promoter of it. Why Why are we not I mean, getting... If there was going to be a show that would do it, it would be us. Oh, absolutely it would. Why are we not going to get sucked into this? Didn't uh, What's-His-Face Keith Law not say that... Because they're going to do this. Keith Law said they could get anybody they want in Major League Baseball. Yeah, and then we have now seen Nolan Gorman become the player that we all wanted him to be. Jordan Walker has broke camp with this team. So you're telling me you'd Dylan rather Carlson have... Dylan Carlson doesn't have the same value that he had at this time last year. Tyler O'Neill's always dogging So it. you're telling me that you'd rather have those guys over Shohei Otani? Yeah. For, for two months? Yeah. No, you're not getting him for two months. You're resigning the big boy. Yeah, I you're not. Yeah. What if Shohei He said that the starting point for Shohei Otani is five hundred million dollars. What if Shohei says I want to be in St. Louis? I mean then great. All Will right. you take two hundred million dollars? Well let's that's what in they the would winter. be willing to do. Yeah. Nobody likes St. Louis in the winter, man. It's yeah. cold here. No, he probably likes the cold. Now nah, if you guys had to guess, where do you think he would be traded to? Like who's the team that would be willing to give up the necessary assets to go make that? Who's deal? the team that has the necessary assets? Fair question as well. I would say the Mets. I, I think they're the I don't number. Think they have any assets that could they get are, that done. They are trying to, and I think it's gonna change because I think Cohen's gonna hit the eject button and panic here shortly because they're missing four of their five starters. But they don't right have now. prospects to they, trade. They're building a decent um, farm system. They are built. They are trying. What they are trying to do is they're <laughs> trying to supplement all the stars with young players. But so far, it's not off to a great start. But I, I think they would be the team that'd be willing to give up those kind of assets. I would. I mean, San Diego's got always a, in got too. A second team. That I think See, here's what I think is going to happen. I think it's going to be a lower-level team that tries to trade for him and get those two months, and then he's going to sign with kind one of these big teams. CC Sabathia going to the Brewers? Yes. That kind of a deal? That, that's exactly what I'm thinking You know of. who could maybe do it? The Cardinals. Honestly? No. The Diamondbacks. Like, if the Diamondbacks, I don't know what's going to happen with them this year. Could trade a Madison Bumgarner. They have, according yeah. to MLB.com, one of the top three farm systems in, in Major League Baseball. If they end up staying atop that division, I don't think they will. I want to say that on the front end. Maybe that's the kind of move they make. They've made big moves in the past whenever they're in it at the trade deadline. I would not do that. They're certainly not going to be re-signing Shohei Otani, but that's the type of team that if you ended up going down that path, maybe you could. Yeah. Maybe Texas. Texas would be the one the to Dodgers keep an eye on. give up one of their their pitchers for See, Shohei? He, they're the team that I think if they do, 
I don't know if they're the number one prospect or number one farm system. Yeah, in baseball I, right I, now. I think they're a team that would keep the farm system intact and then just try and sign them in the offseason. Sure. That, that's the move that makes so much sense for uh, them. I could totally see, though, a CC Sabathia Milwaukee Brewers trade happening. Like, I don't know who it would be, but somebody gets them for oh. two months and believes that they can re sign them. And then he goes to one of the bigger market the, teams in the offseason. The dark horse for me, and this was mentioned, um, I think it was John Heyman that reported it. Vegas? Is the Cubs. I, the Cubs apparently have some interest in bringing him in. Um, if they are in I, it still, I, I don't think they have the farm system report. that say they would have be, be able to bring him in. The Cardinals have interest in bringing in Shohei Otani, too. I can no, report, didn't report the, that. So do the Pirates. I, can, no, I was just going to say, that. I could report the Cincinnati Reds. Actually, the uh, Las Vegas I mean, Aces the, have the, interest in bringing them in. I know you're trying to mock me here, but I, the Cubs are in a big market and would be willing to potentially spend because their ownership group, as they But why did trade this for them if you could just give them the money in the offseason? Because well, you I mean, can you get, get them in. Yeah, and you can get negotiating rights with them. But if you've got the money to spend, just throw the money at them. Yeah, but you can do both. Yeah, but why, 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 why would you give up the prospects? If the, if the Cubs think that they're a contender this year, we'll see. Um, you have them for the extra postseason. But do you, you fall out of the opportunity if you have to trade a significant piece off your major league roster? I don't know. I don't know if you I don't have know to trade the, a significant piece yeah, off your roster. I don't know what they would have I to I think give up you for. could trade them Juan Yepes right now and, um, and uh, Jake Woodford and probably say, let's do this deal right I, now. I will be very curious to see what the Angels want for him. That, that's going to be interesting. Like, what says, are they looking for? Are they looking for top-end talent? Regardless of what level it's at, are they looking for quantity? Like every team is different with this stuff. The A's go one route, obviously. You see other teams that want just, hey, we've got one specific prospect that we really want in this deal. So it'll be be interesting, fascinating storyline over the course of the season. It's going to be another summer that is completely dominated by Shohei Otani uh, this year. All right, from the 314, what would you consider to be a success? Ah, You know what? We'll get to that on the other side. Let's get to this one instead. Do you guys think analytics have ruined or helped the game of baseball? Can I start on this? Well, they've ruined sports talk radio for me because I work with you and have to hear about it all the time. That's fair. I think analytics have made sports in general less watchable. I think they've made it less entertaining to watch. I think watching a great running back in the NFL is as much fun as you can have. Like, look back at those 90s teams in the NFL and that was so much fun to watch. Big linebackers. God, I loved LT. Running backs that are just like the faces of the franchise. Like that stuff is awesome. And it's basically been legislated out of the game. And the way the team building is, because teams are smarter, it's better process to build around your passing game. It's not as much fun, in my opinion, but it's smart. With baseball, it's not smart based on the numbers to run the way that you once did. Now it's changing a little bit this year because the rules have changed, but uh, to take your pitchers deep into a game, uh, to try to hit for singles, you want to hit for more power. The way that baseball is played, basketball, same thing. It's layups and three-point shots. The mid-range game is a lot of fun to watch, man. It's basically been completely removed from the sport unless you're like Kevin Durant or Chris Paul. Everybody else is not shooting mid-range jumpers anymore because it's considered to be a bad shot by the numbers. So I think it has made games less watchable. It has also made the game smarter. So it just depends on what perspective you're looking at. But for a fan, yeah, I think it's been bad for you. I overall. think it creates entertainment, though. I mean, if, at least if you're somewhat knowledgeable and understanding what some of them are, it creates a lot of situations that you ask yourself more questions. And maybe people don't. 
Maybe it's more work than just luxury of sitting back and watching sports where you're asking those questions. But I mean, even in hockey now, it's starting to get to the point where you start looking at different statistics during the game and you ask yourself questions of how they go about that performance and strategy. I I think each sport is different because I I would agree that I I think analytics have made the NBA tougher to watch because I I just find it to be more of just, hey, let's run down the court and chuck up a three because that's what the numbers say. Um, and there's less of that kind of go inside to the post, make that mid-range shot occur. DeMar DeRozan, another guy that only shoots the mid-range now. Um, I, I think baseball, though, and I, I know I'm going to get blasted for this, I actually think it's – I I enjoy the game more, and, and I, I think it's because I think smarter baseball is better baseball. I, I think when you're having a pitcher trying to force – like Jack Flair, we talked about this in his last start – why would I try and force Jack Flurry to throw through that seventh inning when he's been struggling when I can try mixing and matching? And I always find it fun to, okay, how would I manage in this situation? And that's what I try to bring here on the air of, oh, I don't know why Ali did this. And then I can dive into the numbers. Okay, maybe sure. this is what he saw, but maybe I would rather go this route because I think this guy can get a left-hander out better than so-and-so. So I actually enjoy more the analytics stuff. Now, there are some things that are annoying about it, but I think smarter baseball is better baseball to watch. I think the conversations about baseball for me, because I'm a nerd, are more enjoyable about baseball now. I think the actual viewing experience of the sport has become a little worse because of the analytics that are around baseball. And I don't know how they're, I don't think there was any way to avoid that. I think that's just yeah, the, reality, I, I, the, the logical endpoint. Are you saying that because it's now basically the three true outcomes? Uh, I think there's some of that. And I think there's a lot of the, the pitching side of things. Like wh- I've, I think baseball was at its best when you had pitchers that were going deeper into games because they were the headliner. You go into a day and that day's starter is the headline of why you are going to be watching that game. I don't know that you have that for a lot of teams anymore because of the way that we utilize the starting pitchers. It's smarter to go about it this way. You shouldn't see the pitcher the third time through the order for the most part. That is because of the analytics, the numbers that we now know to be true. So I, I agree with that to a certain extent with like the aces like uh, Max Scherzer, who we've talked about a little bit, or like Julio Urias. Uh, like those guys, when Luis Castillo pitches for the Seattle Mariners this weekend against the Cardinals, those guys I want to see going deeper into games and they shouldn't be pulled because they're going third time through the lineup. But do I really want to see a 3-4-5, like a no offense to like Michaelis or Mats or... Uh, guys like that in the Cardinals rotation going further in the games, not really. There I like more of the bullpen mixing and matching. And and I guess for me, the three true outcomes is not so much of a backbreaker for me anymore because I think baseball's at its best that it's ever been at just based on the athleticism, the pure young talent we've seen. Coming up next, somebody on the text line asked this question. Guys, what would a successful season look like for Adam Wainwright at this point? I think it's a fair question. And yesterday's results from his minor league rehab start, uh, lead even more credence to a lower level of expectation. I'll explain why coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. So Adam Wainwright had his first of two scheduled rehab starts yesterday. He did so down in class AA Springfield. 
He was scheduled to throw about 60 pitches. He finished with 59 on the day. He allowed two runs on four hits over three innings of work. He ended up striking out three in that start. Alex, we can't really take much from the results of those games. What we can take, though, is a little bit from his velocity. This was the story of the spring. It was the story when he was starting for the Cardinals, and then eventually when he went down to the World Baseball Classic. His velo yesterday topped out, according to reports, at 87 miles per hour. It averaged about 86 miles an hour on his fastball velo. Guys, I know people get super frustrated whenever we bring up velo because it is not the end-all be-all. However, there is a certain threshold of where you need to be in order to be a successful starter in Major League Baseball. So yesterday, like I said, he topped out at 87 miles per hour. Do you guys know how many starters are currently averaging? Averaging. 87 miles per hour or less. Another BK fun game. I'm going to say it's a low number. Let's go with three, Tanner. I already know the answer. It's zero. It is zero. Son of a... There's not a single qualified starter in Major League Baseball averaging less than 87 miles per hour on his fastball right now. The only guy close to that is Rich Hill, and he's like 57 years old currently starting in Major League Baseball. In fact, I went over the last three full seasons of starters in Major League Baseball, there's not a single one that qualified with this low in terms of the velo. Alex, when you hear that and you think back to what Adam Wainwright was, and by the way, last year he was averaging around 88, 89 miles per hour on his fastball. What are reasonable expectations for Wayno if that doesn't get corrected? It's, I mean, reasonable expectations are... I don't want to say this, but are reasonable expectations Madison Bumgarner? I think that would be really bad because he was just DFA'd. And well, but okay, not on the like D- one of the worst pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. Not the DFA route, but more so where he's not able to find ways to get outs. And does the role change for Adam Wainwright if that's the case? I, I mean, see, for me, like the velocity, and I understand it, it is something to pay close attention to, and it's alarming considering it's dipped. But we all know Adam Wainwright and how he performs like he doesn't he I mean, he pitches like he pitches to what he deems successful for this team. And if the velocity's down, obviously, I mean, reasonable expectations for me would probably be around what Jake Woodford has done with Adam Wainwright, maybe a little bit better. But the reasonable expectations are not Adam Wainwright's going to go out there and give you six or seven innings like he has done in the last couple of years. I mean, you might get to the point where you might be seeing four or five innings from Adam Wainwright when he returns because of this. And that would be disappointing in my mind. And it's not so much because, you know, I'm thinking of Adam Wainwright of old who could throw seven innings. But the main thing that Adam Wainwright was brought back to do was be an innings eater for this rotation. And that and that's basically because he's told, I think it was when Schilt was here, he basically told Schilt, yeah, just throw me out there. You, you don't need to worry about my arm. I'm getting old, and who really cares? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to eat innings for you. And if he can't do that because he's doesn't have velo on his sinker or his cutter, then then that's that's an issue. And look, I'm not saying you should totally panic right now because maybe it was just the first start, hadn't been pitching off a mound in a while. We'll see. We'll see what the numbers look like in his <laughs> second rehab start for him. But but where it does become alarming is. The less velo on his stuff means he's really got to locate and have decent movement on it and rely on the curveball a lot. So reasonable expectations for me, he still has to be an innings eater. If he's only going four or five innings, it's probably not good enough because he's not as big strikeout guy. It's not like you're getting DeGrom strikeout numbers from Adam Wainwright, and then it's okay if you get five innings from him. No, you probably need about 
five, six innings in every start from Adam Wainwright? And can he sit around a four and a half ERA? That would be a reasonable expectation for me. And that's kind of what I'm really hoping Adam Wainwright can provide to this rotation when he comes back. Somebody from the 618 said, guys, it could actually be turn out to be an advantage for Adam Wainwright to throw that low when it comes to his velo. It's just not the case. Um, I, I know that everybody wants to be optimistic about Adam Wainwright. I want to be optimistic about Adam Wainwright. We saw this in the spring. It doesn't work. You have to be able to throw a certain level of velo in today's game. You, you just have to, guys. It matters. When you have the perceived velo that is this low, it, you are going to get hit hard more often. That's how it works. This is not my opinion. There are data sets that will look into this, and you can go read them yourself if you'd like to. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But when we saw Wayno at the end of last season, we thought it was because of one thing, right? We thought it was he got hit in the knee, and everything changed from there because his mechanics were off. And that was the explanation all offseason. And the Cardinals sold it as that. And they said it's going to get better. He's going to be fine. Well, Adam Wainwright in the final month of the season last year was basically a five-and-dive guy. Five innings, four earned runs. Five innings, four earned runs. Five innings, one earned run. Six innings, four earned runs. Three innings, four earned runs. Four innings, six earned runs. In the final month of the season, he had a 7.2 ERA, and when you look at the more advanced numbers, the fielding independent ERA, he's about a 4-4. I think that's what I expect this year. I'm not saying I expect a 7.2, but somewhere around a mid-fours ERA, hoping that he gets through five, maybe can get you through six. I think Adam Wainwright, the reasonable expectations for him this season, for this version of himself, is to be a fourth or fifth starter for you. And I know that's sad, and I know that's not what anybody wants to see this year. We're all rooting for that guy to come back and be dominant, the way that he was for most of the last few seasons. I'm just not sure it's there at this point. When you have Velo that's this low, you're going to be the outlier of all outliers, and he's already been on the low end of the spectrum when it comes to the velocity that he's throwing. And the question, I guess, is can he do that for one more season? And, and I mean, everything we've seen with Adam Wainwright, he's found ways to do the impossible, it seems, for how he's performed at the age he's performed and how he pitches. That's why I'm cautiously optimistic that it's going to be better than what we're anticipating with Adam Wainwright. And I know Springfield, of course, giving up that two-run bomb, but other than that, it was a little bit cleaner with the velo being down. It's really going to come down to the opponents that he's pitching against because like, if you're going up against the Atlanta Braves or when you match up against some of these, these top guys – that's when I think it can get ugly for Adam Wainwright. But again, I'm I'm still, and maybe maybe dumbly, which is not a word, but I'm going to make it right now, cautiously optimistic with this because I do feel like it's Adam Wainwright knowing that it's that final season. I, there's one other thing that I wanted to get to because somebody said, guys, you might be jumping the gun a little bit here. It's the first start down in double A. Why don't we wait to see him pitch a little bit more to see if the velo increases? That's at every point this offseason and spring and then the World Baseball Classic and like at every point, whenever I talk about the velocity, it's well, wait till the next one. Wait till the next one. Wait till the next one. Because this is good. This is now dating back to last September. There has been a clear trend here with the velocity and it has not been a good one. Last September, it dipped and we were told that it was because of him getting hit with the comebacker. It has not returned since last August. We are now into late April of 2023. We're talking about more than six months since we last saw Wayno uh, giving up the velocity or hitting the velocity numbers that you'd like to see from him. At some point, it starts to get, get to my side where 
I need to see it before I believe it more so than it is. Let's wait to see it. And then maybe we'll freak out. The panic mode's there for me. <laughs> like I, I'm not saying that he's going to be uh, Madison bum Gardner, but we need to be prepared for him to potentially be throwing 86 regularly when he gets up to the big league level after these rehab stints. And if that is the case, which seems likely, what does that mean? That's yeah. what we're talking about here. I, I, am I worried about the velo? Yes, I, I'm pretty concerned about the velo and it not being able to jump back up to where he had been sitting. But I, I won't hit the panic button yet until I see what it looks like and how it plays here at the majors. Because though, yes, he is the one of the going to be throwing the lowest average fastball velocity among starters in Major League Baseball. That doesn't mean he can't have success with it. it it's going to be harder. Yeah. But he can still have success. And once we get through two, three starts when he returns, depending on the results, then I will be determining my panic button. The velo, yes, it is kind of worrisome because it, it is harder to have success the, the uh, lower your average fastball velocity is. But if he's still got decent movement to it and he, he does a good job of keeping hitters off balance, he can still have success. So I, I'm not at the panic mode yet. But it is still very alarming that his velo is still down. If there is a pitcher that can make this work in Major League Baseball, it is Adam Wainwright. One of one. That That's who he is. That being said, at a certain point, you just don't have it anymore. Father time is undefeated. And we might be approaching that time with Waino. Coming up next, City. There's some big news surrounding City SC. Are they ready to take the plunge into adding a star via free agency? We didn't think this was going to be the route that they would go. Sure sounds like they're connected to somebody that could change that, though. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we're going to be joined by Barrett Jackman. He knows a little bit about leadership in the, the world of hockey. I want to ask him what the current role is for a captain in the NHL and whether or not he believes that a team needs a captain in order to have a success. We'll talk to Barrett Jackman about that coming up in about 10 minutes or so. But Alex, coming into the season, one of the things that we heard from Lutz, uh, the head of St. Louis City SC, is that this team was not going to be built around a superstar. They weren't going to build that way. It was going to be a team that plays a specific style, and they were going to get a full buy-in, and that was going to be the way that they build this thing. It was going to be a grassroots foundation, and if that meant having some growing pains, so be it. They wanted to build things the right way this year. Well, now you're one of the best teams in MLS, and with that as the backdrop, there was a report that came out earlier today that St. Louis City has approached signing Roberto Firmino, who is ending his or his contract expires on June 30th, and he is expected to leave his team with Liverpool, correct? Yep. So he's going to be entering the transfer, basically the transfer portal for soccer, if you for those that are college sports fans. Um, and City is one of the teams that has approached him about potentially coming over to MLS. Alex, one of the reasons why this did get a little bit of traction is because Lutz was with Hoffenheimer in 2015 in the Bundesliga when he was playing there. So there is a connection between those two from almost 10 years ago now, but it does exist. T-Bone, I know you're our resident soccer expert. 
first of all, how good is this player? And second of all, do you think it's realistic that City could actually add him as a star talent to a team that is already performing at an incredibly high level? So Firmino is still a pretty good player over in Liverpool. I mean, he's got nine goals on the year so far. Uh, he He's a very good striker still. Uh, he's getting towards the back end of his career, I would say. I mean, he is 31, but that's old in soccer years. He's probably been playing professional since he was like 15. Um, but he, he's still a good player. In, in terms of how realistic is it that he comes to City, I, I hate to be the guy that's going to be super negative here, but I, I just don't see it. I, I don't – usually when you got stars coming over to the MLS, it's a moment to either resurrect their career or they're on the back end of their career. Look at Ibrahimovic when he was with the LA Galaxy. He's now over, I think, in Italy playing. I could be wrong there. But I, I still think he's got something to offer for the bigger leagues over in Europe. I mean, we were reading some of the stuff this morning in the office. I think it's AC Malone's connected to him over mm-hmm. in Italy. Uh, Real Madrid in Spain is connected to him. Like I, I think he still has enough in the tank to where he would prefer to play over in Europe, I, I don't think he's ready to come over here to the MLS yet because you have By the to. Rem- way, Milan is the same place as Ibrahimovic currently. Yeah. Okay. Um, you have to remember that the MLS is like the sixth best soccer league in the world, and guys prefer not to come over here unless absolutely necessary. Like Roman Berkey probably would prefer to be playing over in Germany still if he could, but he had to come back here to MLS to resurrect his career, and he's being one of the he's the highest paid goaltender in the league, and he's been playing really well. I, I think Firmino would prefer to stay overseas. It's why I'm skeptical. Do I doubt the city has interest? No, I think they have serious interest because he would be a guy that you bring him in. He's automatically going to become one of the best players in Major League Soccer, and you've got him paired with Klaus and Nico up top there. That's a hell of a tandem there to be uh, on, on your attack. I, I just think he would prefer to stay overseas, and I think he's got interest still overseas in Europe. Yeah, I mean, if my options are Milan or St. Louis, I'm, look, I love, <laughs> I love you, St. Louis, but as an Italian, it'd, it'd be Milan, but... I guess my question is if you're building the team that way of as a group rather than a personality or one person being the star of that team, if you're an expansion team and you're seeing success, do you don't want to dive into those waters right away? Because, look, I, I, I'm not saying don't do that, because if you got an opportunity to get a superstar, you get a superstar. Now, I don't know much about this individual other than so his stats. So that's the important part that I do want to bring up, because, listen, I'm not going to be a fraud and pretend like I've been watching a Same. whole lot of what, what he's done overseas. But from everything that I've read and everything that I understand about the player, it sounds like Firmino is more of a pass-first type of a player. He's a distributor. Tanner, I don't know if you can either confirm or deny that, but it seems like that is the type of player that you would be bringing in. He is a striker but he's a guy that is a distributor. So if that's the type of player that he is, and he's willing to come over here and fit into the system that city is already playing, well, then I could see how it could work. Like there's guys in the NHL, Alex, that you think of that you're like, Oh, so they're a star, but like, I'm trying to think of uh, Panarin. Panarin would be somebody that immediately comes to mind. He's a really good goal scorer. Don't get me wrong. But his best attribute is probably his ability to pass. He's he's an excellent distributor. And so he could fit in on any team and you could make him immediately be a guy that fits into that squad. Yeah. It sounds like the same thing is true for Firmino in terms of what he would bring to City. Now, the question that I would ask is, what does this mean for Gio? What does this mean for And see, that's the problem when I believe, at least I look at it that way, where if you bring in a guy like that, where you feel like, oh, well, his role is pretty distinguished because he's a superstar on the highest level. 
if I'm one of the other guys that are having success and it's like, okay, but what about me? Am I a guy coming off the bench now? I mean, I was the one that was the reason that we've had this success early on. And that's where you've got to take into mind of, okay, does this make us so great that it doesn't matter what it does potentially to one guy's right. internal feelings, right? Like if Gio ends up having to take a little bit of a back seat, and he's been excellent so far for City when he's gotten his opportunities, is that worth it? Do you improve enough by making this move to make it worth it? T-Bone, where do you stand on that? And this is all assuming, and this is probably the hardest part, is you can convince him that City is the best place for him when he's got these other opportunities over in Europe. Yeah, I, I think you have to do it if you're City uh, SC. I, I know, like, they've had the approach of, you know, we, we're going to build that tough, gritted team. We don't need a superstar. But I think that changes when a superstar becomes available. I, I think that's what you say when you're an expansion team. And though they thought they would have success, you really don't know what you have until you get on the field and are playing these teams in the MLS. So I, I think he would come in. I, I think he would fit well. The one thing that I would be curious to know is how would he play with the press? Not so much how would he blend in with the system, but will he be a guy that can press at the age of 31? I, I don't know how old the rest of the roster is for City. Um, they feel like a younger team, yep. and I actually think it'd be better if they have Nico coming off the bench. Not saying he hasn't hasn't been uh, good as a starter. I think he's been really good. Him and Klaus have been really good tandem up at the top in their attacking. Uh, when but they're attacking, fresh legs late is a good thing. It, but having fresh legs late, and also I just don't think they have the depth. I know some people disagree with me there, but I, I don't think uh, Adenarin is that good off the bench. I haven't been that impressed with him early on for City SC. Uh, so I, I would look at it and I'd say if you have the chance to do it. I think you bring him in. I, I think he would fit in pretty well. I, I He has the goal-scoring ability. He is a pretty good distributor, as as you mentioned. He he is one of those guys that is kind of a passing guy. But he can put up 10 goals. I mean, he's got nine for Liverpool right now. So I think if you have the opportunity, I think you kind of abandon the for a year, at least, when you're an expansion team and you say, yeah, you know what? We built the way we wanted to, but now we have a chance to go get a superstar. Let's bring him in because I, I think he helps take you to that next level. Because right now, I think they sit in that second tier in the Western Conference. I do like that they're willing to explore it. I like that yeah. they are at least having these conversations of, hey, we think this guy might be able to fit in here. We think that we are a little ahead of schedule compared to what we were expecting. And we have somebody in our organization right now that has a history with this specific player and he knows, I would imagine, Lutz has a pretty good idea of how he would fit in to the structure of what they have intact currently. I think this signifies that they are further along than they anticipated it. Because Lutz made it very clear this offseason, this is the type of player they weren't going to be looking at because of where they were in their life structure. For them to now consider it by June 30th? I think that's pretty telling and i think that speaks really highly to what they've built already what a month and a half two months yeah. into this start and, of the city season and he would be the second oldest player on the roster the only guy older than him is berkey and then parker would be about a year uh younger than him they only would have three guys above the age of 30 on the roster berkey parker and if they brought in Firmino, Firmino. it's exciting man it's a really exciting time to be a fan of st louis city sc he's alex ferrario that's tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley coming up next barrett jackman certainly knows a thing or two about leadership in the nhl we have heard that the blues might go into next city or next season rather without a captain is that a mistake we'll ask barrett jackman next here on 101 espn we're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Brandon Kylie and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario as we 
Head to our 101 ESPN hotline now on BK and Ferrario and welcome in one of my favorites. 13 years playing for the St. Louis Blues, and he was one of the leadership core in that locker room for such a long time. He is Barrett Jackman. Jax, how are you today, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Doing fantastic. Are you doing a ton of travel right now for hockey with your kiddos, or is it an off-season mode for you too? Oh, no, it's baseball season now. Uh, (laughs) Heading to uh, Mississippi this weekend for a little tournament, and then, uh, you know, back uh, probably Sunday night, hopefully uh, late after a championship. When I texted you yesterday to see if we could get you on and you said I'm wide open, I'm like, oh, I got to pounce on this because I know Jax is on the road like 24-7, so... (laughs) Perfect opportunity to get you on, Jackson. The main reason we wanted to talk with you today is because, you know, the offseason has begun for the St. Louis Blues, and Doug Armstrong held his exit interviews last weekend, and he talked about the culture in the locker room being gone this season, and he said he felt disconnected from his core group of players, and he mentioned your name and David Backus's name of guys that he wanted to speak to and figure out how to approach the disconnect that he feels. So from somebody who's been in the NHL for 14 years, for somebody who has seen different types of cultures in a locker room, Jax, how can that get lost in a season? Uh, you know, a lot of different ways, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, not having success uh, or maybe having su- success when you're not playing, uh, playing the right way. Uh, beginning of the year, the first three games, I thought they played really well. And then they obviously went, uh, uh, went the wrong way and, and lost, uh, you know, seven or eight in a row and then came back in a winning streak. And I know uh, Chief said that uh, even when they were winning, he, he really didn't think that they deserved it. So, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, you get comfortable, you think that you're doing the right things. And, um, yeah, and, and you know, on ice stuff, uh, you know, trickles to off ice. And, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, not having the, the group, uh, maybe that organizer that, you know, plans those, uh, you know, team, uh, team dinners or, or, uh, you know, lunches and things like that. So, uh, there's a number of different reasons you can lose it, but, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes it just takes, uh, you know, some, some poor play, some, uh, you know, not having success to maybe bring that leadership out and, and hopefully next year, you know, some guys can grow mature for, uh, for another year and, and uh, you know, start bringing that culture that uh, has has been passed along for for so many years in the uh, Blues locker room. Jax, how hard is that to recapture? Like for them going into next season, going into this off season, of course, and then starting up next year. How, how do you get back to that? Uh, it, it really comes down to the players. Uh, you know, who wants to step up? Who wants to uh, be successful? Who wants to, you know, take the bull by the horns and and you know, be an elite player? Um, I think there's a lot of guys in the room that, that have the care, but sometimes you got to go out of your comfort zone to to be a leader. And you know, whether it's Thomas and Cairo, uh, you know, I know Shen does a great job, but you can't just be one person doing it. Uh, you know, you know, guys like Pareko are going to have to step up and. And, uh, you know, the younger core that, uh, you know, that the torch has been passed on, they, they really need to, uh, you know, step up, be uncomfortable being leaders and, and just do the little things, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, be at the rink first, be in the gym first, uh, doing those extra things, helping, uh, you know, with the other guys, with, with your peers, if the guy's struggling or, or just dragging guys into the battle with, uh, with work ethic. So there, there's a lot of different ways that, uh, uh, you, you can lead, but uh, you know you have to be uncomfortable with with being uh, uh, stretching your your role and 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 being a leader. 
We're talking with longtime blue Barrett Jackman here on BK and Ferrario and Jackson. I'm glad you brought that up of, you know, feeling uncomfortable and kind of forcing yourself into that leadership role, because for the longest time, you know, it was Alex Petrangelo. That was the go to guy. But you also had guys like Steen and Perron and Shen in the room. And last season, the last couple of seasons, it was O'Reilly and Perron and Shen. You were a part of a lot of guys who had longer tenure when you got into the league, like Chris Pronger and Al McKennis and Keith Kachuk. At what point did you start to feel comfortable that you could take over as one of the leaders in that locker room? I think it was pretty early. Um, you know, guys like Scott Mellonby and, and Big Walt and Dougie Waite and, and uh, Al and Prong. Um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, when I spoke, I, I didn't speak a lot. When I spoke, it, it, it there was a meaning behind it. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. I was, uh, you know, I was a pretty young captain. I was in, in junior at, at 17 and, uh, you know, kind of saw the workings, uh, you know, you know, communicating with coaches, communicating with trainers and players and making sure everybody was, uh, you know, doing their job. So uh, I think within my first couple of years in St. Louis, uh, kind of, I guess, following the leaders, but also, you know, feeling that I could say something because, uh, you know, they would listen. And, you know, sometimes those were uncomfortable conversations and, and sometimes they'd, they'd tell me to shut up. And uh, <laughs> But that was that was one of those things. You can't be afraid to, to be put in your place. And, you know, and showing that you can speak and showing that you care is, is part of being a leader. And, uh, you're going to have disagreements, but you know that's another thing. If if you have a disagreement with somebody, if you call somebody out, you can't be afraid to uh, to hurt their feelings because it is a business. It is uh, you know not only the you know the 22, 23 uh, guys that are in the locker room, but it's the livelihood of uh, you know the coaches, the training staff, uh, uh, the fitness trainers, uh, equipment managers, the people that work in the office. There's so many people that. Uh, you know, rely on, on the guys to do their job. And, and it is a business as much as you want to, uh, you know, enjoy it and have fun. Uh, you have to have results and you have to, uh, you know, be a professional in, in your in your job. Bear Jackman is our guest here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Jax, you saw four or five different captains in your time here in St. Louis with the Blues. They all bring a little something different to the table. When you think about that role of being a captain in the NHL, Army said over the weekend, he's not sure that the Blues are going to go into this upcoming season with somebody that has the designated C on their chest. Is there still a role for a captain in the NHL? When you think about that role today in the NHL, what do you see? Yeah, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, a captain is, you know, kind of the most popular, the uh uh, most marketable uh, person, or maybe this, the person that could speak uh, the best in, in the media. And there's uh, there's sometimes the captain's name, but you know behind the scenes there's uh, there's guys that are you know kind of maybe uh, you know worshipped or, or maybe held as uh, uh, in regard as the captain uh, to other players. But it's all about uh, you know the captain, the leaders all have to work together. They all have to have uh, you know somewhat of the same voice. Um, they have to be able to, you know, call each other out, but they also have to, you know, relay the same message uh, uh, when it comes to the uh, to the team game. So uh, there's there's a whole uh, whole bunch of different roles. If you don't have a, a defined captain, then you know there's no sense in giving a seat to somebody and putting that pressure or just putting that uh, that label on a guy that, you know, maybe uh, you know is is not the one.
A lot of the conversation, Jax, this season has been around Kairou and Thomas because of those contract extensions and, you know, maybe feeling a little extra pressure on them, the struggles that they went through this season. I kind of tie those two together that if you're not going to name a captain, maybe that forces those two kids into uh, taking over more of a leadership role in that locker room. And when you're a young guy, sometimes that can be a little bit difficult. But I would imagine in a certain situation, if it goes down that path, maybe that can force them into that spot. Yeah, I uh, definitely force it. Uh, um, you know, if if you want to, if you're getting paid eight and a half million or whatever it is their uh, their salaries are, you have to uh, take on uh, a lot of responsibility. And um, you know, it starts in the off season with your training regimen. Um, you know, with like I said before, being the guy that is at the rink more than anybody else, uh, you're getting the money. You can't be comfortable with you know just uh, collecting a paycheck and. And uh, just going out and throwing your stick on the ice. There's so many different things that you can do to make your team better. Uh, you know, you saw that with uh, with O'Reilly. Um, you know, doing the little things. You know, on the ice first, off the ice last. Uh, taking the little guys, doing drills. Uh, you know, Scotty Nickel is one of those guys that uh, you know he wasn't the star player. He wasn't the guy, but he drug everybody in. He did extra skating with guys. Um, you know, Steve Ott was the same way. And, you know, now he's a coach. So there's a lot of different things you can bring to the table uh, to be a leader, to to earn your paycheck and, uh, you know, be an elite player. Jax, always appreciate the time and for you to give us a little bit of perspective into all of this. Uh, enjoy these upcoming road trips with your son for, uh, <laughs> for, uh, for sports. And we look forward to talking with you again once we get to the hockey season. Absolutely. Anytime, yes. Awesome. There you go. Barrett Jackman, one of my favorites, uh, with a lot better perspective than we can provide in terms of leadership and culture in a locker room. Speak for yourself. I get to feel like I can, uh, as the fearless leader of this show, bring a pretty strong perspective on what it means to lead a group of men uh, to the promised land. But I appreciate you. What was uh, that thing that Jack said? They told, oh, yeah. Shut up. Come on. <laughs> And feel okay with saying it. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. I back your opinion yeah. on him telling and you him to shut up. You shouldn't be offended that I told yeah. you to shut up. Yeah. When you hear Jack say what he did about the captaincy, how, hey, sometimes it's just like the most popular guy, it's the one that's going to be on all the commercials and stuff. Is it fair, in your opinion, Alex, for me to say, the captaincy is about the public-facing person on your team. Yeah, it's about more so than it is what's actually taking place inside of that locker room. Yeah, it's about the guy that's going to... Again, I go to Ryan O'Reilly with this because every time the Blues would lose, you would expect Ryan O'Reilly to talk because he was the captain. But even before he was the captain, when Petra was, it was Ryan O'Reilly that was speaking with the media. And then you're talking about all the stuff that they do outside of the game where it's the charities and meeting and greeting and things like that. Yeah, that's what the captaincy truly is. Now, there are certain players, like Patrice Bergeron is the captain of that team in Boston. And he wasn't the captain. Chara was the captain. But people knew Patrice Bergeron was going to be the guy. And Patrice Bergeron, what he says what go- is what goes. But in terms of that locker room, yeah, Jax is right. I mean, even Doug Armstrong said it. He's like, typically, teams in the past, they put the captaincy up for a vote with the players. And the players vote. He said the problem is when you do that, next year there could be seven guys that voted for the captain that aren't even there anymore. Sure. So I, I do believe, and look, there's two teams right now in the playoffs that don't have a designated captain because they view it as we got a lot of guys who could be leaders in this locker room. The captaincy to me, although there is some, there's some stock that you take in being a captain for a team, I think when you're in the midst of a retool like the Blues are, I think that's just putting a letter on somebody's jersey and calling them a captain. 
actually kind of disagree. Okay. Well, that's because you're the fearless leader. I think Braden Shen is the captain of this team. Yeah, but you don't need to put a C on his jersey for that. Everybody knows that he is. Then what's the harm in putting a C on his jersey? That That's where I come down on this. Thomas which is, and Kairou then delegate to Braden Shen. Fine. No, they it's should. not. That's what they've been doing these last couple of years. I, you guys are the leaders now. They're not, though. They sh- like, They need to be. I disagree with that. I disagree with you. You have to be a leader if you want to have success. I mean, you just heard Jack say it. You can't make eight and a half million dollars and just go out there and put your sticks on the ice and go about your business. I, I where I disagree is not so much that like I, I think they need to do their business correctly. I don't think that you I don't think that Robert Thomas needs to be the guy that everybody else looks to, though. I don't think that he needs to be the figurehead of the team. Austin Matthews has an A. With the Toronto Maple Leafs. Do we all agree that Austin Matthews is the best player, though, on the Toronto Maple Leafs? Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why doesn't he have the captaincy? Why isn't he the guy? Is he becoming too passive in giving the C to John Tavares? I, I don't feel that well, way Well, they didn't do it because they didn't want to have him put the sole responsibility on himself of being the captain. Sure. But whatever the reason, all of these teams have a reason to give the captaincy to somebody. Braden Shin, when you think about who is the public facing person for this team, it's been him. It's been him for a while. If we're being totally honest, he plays the way that the blues want their game to look. He is great with the media. He's really good in the community. He's the guy that when Jake neighbors, and we talked about this with Doug Armstrong, when he came on the show, army said, Hey, when you came into the league, was there somebody that took you out for coffee? Was there somebody that you stayed at their place instead of going to the hotel? Jake neighbors stayed at Braden Shin's place when he came up to the league. Part of that is because they felt like he would fit in well with Shin, given what their games are. They remind each other of one another. But I think Shin is the guy that when you think about everything that you want the blues to be, he is a personification of that playing style. Here's, here's, and I comp the blues to this, the Winnipeg Jets. Blake Wheeler has been the face of that franchise for a a while since he's been the captain of that team. There have been other guys like Mark Shifley and um, Dustin Bufflin when he was there, but it was always Blake Wheeler. And when Rick Bonus took over this offseason, he said, we don't view this as one guy as the leader of a room. We need everybody to be on the same page this season. And that's what they did. They stripped the C from Blake Wheeler, and they basically told Wheeler and Shifley and Kyle Connor that you guys are the ones that are going to be leading this team as a group rather than one individual. That's the way that I view the same thing with, with the Blues this season and what Doug Armstrong's talking about. Because, yeah, Braden Chen is going to be the unsung captain of this team, even if he doesn't have a letter on his jersey. Keith Kachuk was the unsung captain of that Blues team, but they put the C on Eric Brewer when they moved on from Chris Pronger. There are certain teams that I feel like, yeah, you could put the C on one player because you just deem him as the captain. But when you're in the middle of a retool like the Blues are, rather than sit there and say he's going to be our captain for the rest of this time and then probably Robert Thomas, maybe you go about it for two years and you say, you know what? Let's let everybody be the captain of this team. Sure, Braden Chen is going to be the elder statesman in that locker room and who people look at. I guess my question would be why? Like, why, if Braden Chen is already serving in all of these roles that a captain typically would? Because I want Thomas to feel comfortable in taking over that role also. And I want Justin Falk to feel comfortable and Colton Pareko feel comfortable. Falk's already basically being the guy that you're talking about. Exactly. I, really, it just comes down to, like, is this going to scare Robert Thomas off from becoming more of a leader? I don't. 
see any reason that it would. I don't know if it's scary. Like, it's not going to change Braden Shin as a person to be the captain. I, I look but at it more like the Colorado Avalanche. Gabriel Landeskog is their captain. It's not Nathan McKinnon. Nathan McKinnon is a better hockey player than Gabriel Landeskog. Nathan McKinnon is, you said the other day, one of the most talented players in the NHL. He's right up there as potentially the next face of the NHL along with um, Connor Connor McDavid. And yet he's not even the captain of his own team. Why is that? Well, because Gabriel Landeskog is everything that the Avalanche wants to be. As a team, he personifies the grit of their team, the way that they were able to win the cup last year. That's not a shot against Nathan McKinnon, but it's the reality. It's the truth. Braden Shin is that guy, in my opinion, for the St. Louis Blues. Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas are hopefully going to follow the same path as Nathan McKinnon, where as things go along, they become more and more and more important as prominent roles, obviously, on this team. But I think that's the team that I would kind of model this after Gabriel Landeskog is to the avalanche what Braden Shin is to the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, I, I I can see that. I just, the fact that they're talking this way, or at least Doug Armstrong's talking this way, because again, at the end of the day, he said it comes down to Craig Berube and what Craig Berube said about a captain epitomizes Braden Shin. So it might go that direction and all of this is for naught, but I, I don't want this season to happen next season in terms of where guys just get too comfortable in this spot. And rather than, because for the longest time it was with Ryan O'Reilly, where it was, well, the captain's got this tonight. Uh, He'll discuss this. We don't have to worry about that. Occasionally you'd get the Tarasenko's, you'd get the Pareko's, you'd get the Falks. But if you're going to put an onus on certain guys and responsibility like Thomas and Cairo, rather than say, well, Braden Chen can take care of this. I want them to feel like they can handle this just as much as he, as he can. Totally agree with this text from the 618, and I'll let Andrew have the final say, uh, take on this. If naming Shin as the captain stops Thomas or Kairou as stepping up from leaders, then they wouldn't have been deserving of being a captain down the line anyway. Totally agree. If, if a C on somebody else's chest stops them or makes them feel like they can float in and out of stuff easier then they weren't going to be the leader that we think that they're capable of being anyways. Coming up next, we'll dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in, carry out, seven days a week. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. T-Bone, what do you have for us today in the junk drawer? Guys, you know how Aaron Rodgers goes on darkness retreats? Uh-huh. And he's there for, I think it's like two to three days at the most as like a darkness retreat. Sure. How would you guys like to go on a, I would assume it's dark in there, but I don't know, a darkness retreat in a cave for over 500 days? Out. 500 Ow. days? Yeah. Like, almost two years. Uh, that's not, that's not two, isn't two years? Well, I mean, it's two about years a year would be like yeah. seven and seven hundred right. days. Round it, round it up to two years. Yeah. It's going to feel like two years. That's what a Spanish athlete, I'm not going to attempt to put name. Uh, she spent 500 days alone in a cave for what they are calling uh, science in uh, southern Spain. And she was, it was 230 feet below the surface. Oh, I'm out. 
Yes. You know what's, you know what's living 230 feet below the surface? I just pulled up this story. Apparently, she remained silent the entire experience. So she did not speak for a year and a half. How do you how do you how do you even have a voice after that? Do you think you forget how to speak? I mean, you'd think if you will go nearly two, you could think, oh, you two years without speaking, and then all of a sudden, it's like just back a to normal. Yeah. yeah, I don't think so. I would think there would be a lot of other stuff psychologically that that would mess with. I'm not saying you'd be messed up, but for a year and a half to be alone with your own thoughts, I, I might be a little. I can't different I, coming out of that than I, I was. Before. I don't like the weekends with my own thoughts. So 500 days is not something that I want to be a part of. What now, what do you think is the most you could go without being around others? Like zero human interaction. See, I've been living before in, you go nuts. Who's the human that I have to stay away from? Because you, no, I'm saying for the rest in general, you life. have zero human interaction for yeah. however long you can stand it before you're Family, like, I feel like I you're going to get go back cabin fever in in less than a week. I'd probably agree with that. I, I don't even know if I could do a week. I could probably do. At best, maybe five days to completely get away from I, it. And I, not only get away from people, but get away from like social media, everything involved. I mean, I could go a couple of days because it'd probably be nice to be away from people for a couple of days. But like by day three, I'd probably start losing my mind. Yeah, I I don't think I could make it more than a week either. And this is almost a year and a half. This is like 70 weeks that she was able to do that. I mean, first of all, it's an amazing achievement for her to be able to accomplish something like this. But I I have no interest and would never consider also, doing such a thing. Like, let's go beyond the past, the path of being away from people for that amount of time and sitting in darkness. Like, what kind of freaking creatures do you think you're going to be living around under in a cave underneath? How far was it? 230 feet. Are you, and you're in the darkness, so you don't know what's crawling next to you. Now she did yeah, I'm now, out on that. Does it change your answer if I said she did emerge with what looks like a headlamp on her bed? Headlamp? What? No. On her bed a helmet with a, a helmet with a flashlight. Oh, so she like was spelunking for yeah, 500 I think, days. I think she had the light in there, but I don't, I mean, it couldn't have been a lot. That's even worse. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that's, this. I'm out. There's nothing about that Would sounds Would you be fun. willing to spend a night in a cave? I don't even know if I'd yeah. want to do that. Oh, really? I, I don't know. <laughs> if I, you, I, I, I could would. do. <laughs> I think I would. If you like, listen, I'm not exactly an outdoorsman, but you want to go do something outdoorsy for a day, I can do that. But if you're talking about doing something for three, four, five days in a row, no, I'm not that adventurous. I So, like, I don't mind doing, like, when we've been on vacations and we go down into caves, like, I don't mind doing that. But I do want to get out as soon as possible because I, I know that those things can cave in. So uh, that's why, like, me spending a night there. I'm out. If you want to do outdoor stuff, yeah, let's go camping. Because if the tent caves in, you know, I'm I'm not gonna. I would hope I'm not gonna die from that. My but camping is a is a hotel that has bed bugs. That's my camping. That's not the text really, line uh, asks some follow up questions on this about how she ends up getting like her food or what did she eat? What were the supplies like? I I didn't see any of that in the I story. Didn't I didn't have the time to go back and read it. It's pretty thoroughly. obviously she's killing animals down there and eat, <laughs> cooking them and eating I, them. I think since it's a because it was a science ex- experiment. I'm assuming someone was delivering food down to her. That would be my guess. But I I don't know. Somebody's if delivering I'm being completely food honest, to her? I read like just the little snippets of the article of like, wow, you pulled five hundred days. No, no, no I read, read it. I had read part of the article. I didn't read the whole thing. I was just like, wow, five hundred days, that's a lot. How far down was she? Oh, two hundred and thirty feet? All right, I got all the information I really need. Coming up next, we are officially all in on the Wilson Contreras experience here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Yang, fair ball down the left field line. Here comes Arenado to score. Contreras on his way to second. Throw off target. It's three to nothing. Alongside Alex Ferrari on Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Wilson Contreras looked like the player that we all expected him to be when he signed with the Cardinals over the last three days. Guys, he finished that series as clearly the best player for the St. Louis Cardinals. He came into this series batting just 220 with an OPS of 560. He left the series batting 275 with an OPS on the season of 810. So he improved his OPS by 250 points in a three-game series. That's what you're looking for. It wasn't just the production, though. It was also the way that he went about it. He's stealing third base. He's giving the the sticking out his tongue. Whoa. I was about to say he was giving the tongue. I figured I would say Who's it a different way. He's giving the tongue too. I was about to say he's giving the finger. I was like, I didn't see that. <laughs> he's sticking out great. his tongue. And then yesterday he got underneath Madison Bumgarner's skin. Like that is the full Wilson Contreras experience. Earlier today I was looking it up, and there was a, a piece on ESPN um, with the. Diamondbacks manager who said, hey, yeah, we feel a certain kind of way about Wilson Contreras and the way that he plays the game. And that's about all I'm going to say about that. Nice. That's what you want to hear about your catcher that replaced Yadier Molina. Yesterday after the game, Ollie Marmel was asked about the Cardinals confidence in Wilson Contreras, even when he was struggling. Here's what he had to say. Good hitters hit, man. They just do. So it's just a matter of time uh, before he's right back where where he needs to be and every day he's inching closer to that and we're seeing a really good version of him over the last couple of days yeah this has nothing to do with his hitting and everything to do with his attitude about the game i mean when wilson Contreras throws somebody out at second base in the middle of april and acts like he's in game seven of the nlcs i'm all in on that and that's the type of player he is and i've seen individuals whether it's social media which we all know is for truth and no scams or whether it's texting in that say ah well that's really not the cardinals way to have that type of attitude and showboat i don't care Uh, you need this. You need this electricity. You need a guy who's throwing people out at second base and celebrating. You need somebody who's going to get underneath the skin of the opposing pitcher, even if it is him shouting at himself, because that's how you get the, the extra edge on the opponent. And Nolan Arenado has been about that, but I think Wilson Contreras takes it to another level and people hated him so much because it was him. Javier Baez was that way for Chicago and people despised it. But I love everything about what Wilson Contreras is, what has done and has nothing to do with the offense and everything to do with his attitude. I, I love the fact that you now have a kind of a villain in St. Louis yeah. in Wilson Contreras because, yes, he plays with swagger, but it's almost kind of that cocky swagger that really a lot of people just do not like. Like the oof when he almost hit that shot from Madison what? Bumgarner yesterday. He made the sound effect. I was <laughs> relaying what it was. That was actually exactly like what it sounded like on the uh, on the broadcast. Yeah, so like, I, 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 like, I like that. And I like, what was it the other day? I think when he threw a guy out, he like kind of winked at him. Like, hey, nice try. That was cute. But you're out at second base. <laughs> like, I, I, I love that because I've loved that the Cardinals over the last couple of years have been molding in kind of some guys with energy maybe not so much the swagger but the energy like think of Lars Newbar he's got energy I, I don't know if he has like the swagger to where you hate him Nolan Arnado kind of the same where he's, he's got that and en- brings some energy to the ball club but it's not enough to where you really hate Nolan Arnado now Wils Contreras brings both that that swagger to the game of baseball and also some energy that really feels like there's now a villain in St. Louis and when he starts hitting the ball like he has in this series then it really rubs people the wrong way because Albert I think was viewed as a 
a uh, enemy in, or a uh, villain in St. Louis, but that was just because he was hitting the crap out of the baseball. There yeah. was nothing about his game that made you really hate him. It was just like, holy bleep, I wish we had one of those guys. Wilson does a little bit of everything that gets under your skin, and I, I really personally like watching it. Someone said he's David Perron. No, he's Jordan Bennington. And I mean, he's Jordan Bennington in the terms of people no, I never dislike him. Never he literally cool and goes after people. Well, give him an opportunity and he might. But I mean, didn't no. he actually try and start a fight in spring training? Yeah, he kind of got there yesterday. Yeah, um, like, I mean, that's I mean, it's the same guy. People hate that individual, but you love him on your team. I think there's some truth to that. Unless you're BK, then you just despise him all the time. No, I think that I think the difference. Don't say that he's bad. He's on a winning team. Well, yeah, that's the thing for that's, me. That's a big part of it is they like both won a championship like, for sure. And when Bennington was doing it during the winning, I think people had fewer questions about any of it. Like they enjoyed some of the antics that were taking place. It's it's harder to deal with. Like, it, for example, we, I, I went to the um, the example of Draymond Green earlier today when Draymond's doing it in the wins. It's funny. It's like it's a part of his charm almost that he's able to get under guy's skin and he plays right on that edge and sometimes jumps over it a little bit when he's doing it and his team struggling and then it causes them potentially to be booted out of the playoffs or to lose in the NBA finals. It's not so funny anymore. Suddenly now it feels like he's almost hurting his team with some of the antics. And I think that's where some people go with Jordan Bennington as well. Contreras is a little different because like he's not out here. Most of the time trying to fight anybody or anything like that. He's just playing with passion. And so I'm I'm actually not sure that there's a guy that I would say is the equivalent of that for the blues. It is kind of Yachty-esque. Like Yachty would be the closest thing that I can think of to what Wilson Contreras is as a player because he was a villain to a lot of, of other teams. Teams around Major League Baseball, fans around Major League Baseball did not like Yachty or Molina. In St. Louis, he was beloved. Elsewhere, People hated that dude because of how good he was, first of all, but also because of the style that he played, the way that he was almost seen as an enforcer behind the plate for his team. I think Wilson has some of that, but I would also add this. I think Wilson plays with a little more joy than Yachty did, and that's not a shot against Yachty. Yachty was always about the fire. Kind of business-like. Yeah, it was was about like going about his business day-to-day, Wilson Contreras, I mean, you guys remember one of my favorite plays in baseball that I've ever seen was Wilson Contreras and um, Javi Baez with the Cubs. Like, them picking guys off at second base was just amazing to watch regularly. Like, the, the, the joy that they played with. It was something that you just don't see a whole lot in Major League Baseball. And he brings some of that that I think the Cardinals really needed on this team. Newt plays with that joy. He brings that energy, but I think Wilson is like that perfect mix of fire and burning hot that Arenado has while also bringing some of the joy that you get from Lars Newtbar as well. So that that's where I think it's a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think Wilson Contreras, and I haven't talked to him about it. I'd love to pick his brain with it, but I do think that there's a little bit of, of game of chess with the way Wilson Contreras goes about his game outside of the offense. Like, I, I believe that there are little antics that go into it of, you know, celebrating, throwing somebody out, a little over-exaggerating celebrate. I mean, him tossing that bat on that walk yesterday, you knew exactly what he was doing there. Uh, there's 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 a game of chess with Wilson Contreras in terms of, I know people dislike me, let's get under their skin a little bit. I think I figured it out. He's Pat Maroon with the way that he plays. 
And what I mean by that is Pat Maroon kept things light, guys. He kept things super light in that locker room. He was the guy that everybody inside of that locker room loved. But also, man, when there was time to take care of business on the ice, Pat Maroon was more than happy to do it. He was the guy that was going to go out there and get the job done. So it it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I would say that's the closest thing that we've seen recently by the Blues. Maybe you could argue Ryan Reeves is a, is a little closer to what he is because Ryan Reeves was very businesslike as well. So one of those two kinds of guys is, is probably the closest cross-sport comparison that we have with the Blues. I, I would agree with that. The, the part that I like even better about the Contreras aspect of it, because I I, I agree with you, Maroon kind of brought that on the ice, but Contreras just has more talent than what those guys had. Those guys were sure. always fourth-line enforcers. This is essentially, I mean, that would essentially be like if you had a seven-hole hitter that had this kind of fire. That's fair. Uh, this is a guy that is like batting fifth, was your biggest off-season acquisition, and is a guy that when, when you saw when he was struggling, the offense kind of scuffled. And, and when he's right, the offense is playing better as of right now. So I guess that's the only kind of, it, I don't know if I want to call it pushback, but I guess it's the part that I, I enjoy the most is it's, one of your stars that's doing it. It's, it's not a role player that is doing it. It's one of the stars on the St. Louis Cardinals. I think that matters. To your point earlier today, Alex, about the, the best players being your leaders, Like I don't know that it's always necessary for that to be the case. I just think you need to be authentic. Like Be yourself, whatever that means for your team. Wilson Contreras being one of the best players and being a leader, same thing for Goldie, same thing for Arenado with the Cardinals specifically, that does add more value to who he is as a player with this team. I also think it matters that he was a guy that was struggling early on in the season and it never felt like he got down on himself or that the Cardinals got down on him because we've heard from Matt Holiday, We've heard from Nolan Arenado after his first season here. We've heard from a lot of guys that either get traded here or sign in St. Louis Dexter Fowler. They put a lot of pressure on themselves to make sure that they perform. And sometimes that first season doesn't go the way that they expect it to in part because of that. Wilson Contreras feels like he never lost touch with that expectation, that belief is going to turn around. I'm doing the right things. It's the results are going to follow sooner rather than later. I think that's good to have in that locker room as well, because for the team as a whole, you're seeing some of that right now. I mean, Nolan Arenado, I'm sure, was having that same thing, although his numbers looked great. I mean, there were multiple situations early on in the season with runners in scoring position that could have broken the game wide open, and he missed those opportunities. Uh, and that's why when, when people were complaining about Wilson Contreras needing to earn his contract in the first week of the season, I looked at it and I said, <laughs> we can get upset about him struggling at the start, but you're in a new city with a new team trying to follow up a Hall of Famer yeah. in Yadier Molina, and I would imagine if I'm Wilson Contreras, I know my offense is going to come. What I don't know is going to show up is people trusting me on the defensive side and working with the pitchers. So I'll take a little off on the offensive side to be better on the pitching and the defensive side, which he's been great at all season long. Now the offense is starting to show through. And he's the re- this is the reason when it came to catchers in the offseason, I said this needs to be priority number one rather than Sean Murphy. You were or- always all in on him. Yeah, it's just that attitude. Like you, you need that attitude if you want to win and get to that next level. 314-399-9646 is the air cover service text line. Final thing on this, this comes from the 636. Guys, this is the way that I would describe the difference between Yadier Molina and Wilson Contreras. It's not a better or worse thing, but it is different. Mad Bum trashed Contreras yesterday. He walked. He flipped his bat to show him up. If Mad Bum did the same thing with Yadier Molina, Yadi would have had to be held back by somebody from charging the mound. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to describe it. I think that's the difference between the two players. Doesn't make either one right or wrong. It's just different. It's different in the way that they react to the exact same situation. 
I think Arenado is more similar to Yachty in that regard. I think Arenado runs really hot. When he's emotional, you can see it. He's breaking his bat over his knee, or he's clearly angry at Mad Bum in a situation like that, whatever it might be. Wilson Contreras is more like, all right, bet. Let's let's go ahead and see how this goes. And then he, he walks, and he flipped his bat into the sky and was smiling as he was walking over to first base. It's a little different. It's, it's a slight difference there. I, I could see Wilson Contreras getting to that point, though, where he's like, no, nah, I'm done. I'm going to charge to the mound. I, I he's got too, some of that for yeah. sure. I, I do think that's a good – I think that is a good way to frame it from the text. I, I can just now picture him. Remember the – brawl in Cincinnati where Phillips taps the shin guard of Yachty and it is just immediately yeah let's go I get picture Contreras saying all right bet and then on the strikeout he goes oh yeah there he goes <laughs> exactly he's out of here and does the punch out with the umpire yeah I, I think there's a slight difference between the two and again it doesn't make one better or worse it's just slightly different coming up next it's T-Bone's favorite segment of the week 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for believe it or not here on 101 ESPN we're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Look at what's happened to me. I can't believe it myself. Suddenly I'm up on top of the world. It should have been somebody. Malpractice by yeah. Alex Ferrario. Ruining our best segment. All right, I, I'm going to need you to restart this. Yeah, thank T-bone. you. No, we now I don't want to. Now so, you guys are getting all, all angry. No, what you did was silly. That, there was no need for that. Yeah, I said I was going to mess with Tanner, and he I thought he couldn't with me hear twice. the song. The entire point of us doing this segment. There, BK, the entire let, point. Let's, let's get a peek behind the curtain real quick. BK is sick, so he has been coughing up a lung. You've clearly heard it on the radio. <laughs> they have tried to hold back their talkback button so it doesn't go on the air. But there are times where Alex has held the talkback button into my ear while I am talking, which makes my job hard. I brought it up. He got upset and then just ruined our best segment. Yeah. So what he did was while the song was playing, Alex was holding the talkback button. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the way that radio works, basically he's pressing a button that means that Tanner can hear nothing but what Alex is saying to him. That's it. It's the only thing that Tanner can hear. So instead of hearing the song start, T-Bone had no idea that the song had started or where it was at, and therefore he could not sing. It was a silly thing to do. Alex messed up the segment. I I thought we were closer than that as a band. All right, I'm going to just hit this one out then. That's fine. I'll take a two-minute in the penalty box. You should take a penalty break. I can't believe Alex just did that. Because BK's all pissy. I think you're hungry. I'll I'll take a step back. You messed up the segment. I'll take a step back. Go ahead. I'm upset. Be better. I thought we were closer as a band. Go ahead. Sing it with me, Texters. No, no Alex is Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel so free. Flying away on a wing and a prayer. Who could it be? Believe it or not, it's just me. I had to take over Alex's party, even though I'm playing hurt. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Believe It or Not. You guys send in your text. We'll tell you if we are believing it or not here on 101 ESPN. Guys, let's start with this. I'm very excited about my Missouri Tigers. They have added now 
three players via the transfer portal. The latest being Caleb Grill. He is a guard from Iowa State. He followed Iowa State's current coach from UNLV back to Iowa State. He is an excellent three-point shooter. He had some mental health issues this past season and... For a lot of different reasons, you can read about this if you want to. We don't need to go into the full story, but uh, was kicked off the team for some insensitive comments that he made. Apparently, he is back in a good headspace. Uh, Dennis Gates and he are on the same page, and they believe that it's going to be a good fit for him at Missouri. Caleb Grill is an incredibly good three-point shooter. He is exactly the type of player that Missouri was looking for to be able to replace what they are losing um, in some of the players that they had last year. Guys, believe it or not, Missouri is going to be even better in 2023 than they were this past season because of the uh, additional talent that they've added to the team. Uh, Not believing this because I still don't think they address their other need of the the big man. Give it time, man. We're getting one. I've seen a lot of them. They've got one on campus right now from Virginia. Ah, he's not good. Really good defensive player. It's Virginia. So I'm not believing this one. A regular Virginia, very yeah, regular good. Virginia. Uh, I'm not going to believe it either. I, I, I have a sense of a step back year coming for mm. the Missouri Tigers. Uh, I still think they're going to be a tournament team, but I, I think there was a lot of hype, especially when you started one based on the run they had before they got knocked out by Princeton, and also the fact that they were connected to Caleb Love, and then they lost out on Caleb Love. And I, I'm just curious to see how this building experience goes for Dennis Gates because it's very tough to build a team through the transfer portal. Ask Brad Underwood. He went through it. He learned. He's still learning. Um, I, I'm just not going to believe it, though. I'm going to believe this. I think they end up being better this year than they were this past season. I think they outperformed a little bit how good they actually were as a team this past year. Their defense was atrocious, like genuinely awful. If they weren't getting steals, they were not getting stops. I think they're going to be better on the defensive side of the ball this year than they were this past season. Tamar Bates, who's coming over from Indiana, is a really good three and D type of a player. He's much better defensively than really anybody that they had on the wing last year. I think that's going to help them a ton. They're able to play man to man defense in a way that they weren't able to last year. Caleb Grills should be able to replace a decent amount of what Demoy Hodge gave them this past season, as well as a three point shooter. I think they're going to be better. I think they finish with a similar record, but are better overall in terms of the the underlying stats, if you will. Alex, what do you got for Believe It or Not? Your uh, favorite segment. Believe it or not, the Blues draft a defenseman with the 10th overall pick. Ooh. What was, that? What was the guy you mentioned yesterday, Swede? Uh, yeah, David Reinbacher. I think yeah. that's who they... He's like the only guy that's like a top-end defenseman. The others are at the sm- back of the first yeah, they round. they got a smaller dude that's... I think he's like 5'10". We've got plenty <laughs> yeah, of those. I was going to say. Um, I'm not going to believe this. I, I think they're going to take a forward in the draft. I, I just see this as there's one defenseman that's on the board. I, I think they look at it and say, look, we've already we got to figure out what we have on our roster currently before we really start developing these guys right now because they've got, what, like nine guys that they got to try figuring out playing time. Like they don't even know how they're going to get Perunovic playing time huh. going into next year yet. Um, so I, I'm not going to believe this. I'm not believing this either. I think they're going to fo- the forward route. I think they're going to try to take whoever the best forward is that is available on the board. I like that side of things. Yeah, I'm not believing it also. I, I, I believe they'll draft a defenseman if they get pushed down a spot or two, depending on how this draft lottery goes. But in the top 10, you're going to take a forward. I know everybody's sentiment of, well, you got to get a defenseman because your defense is bad. you got four guys right now in your system that might be competing for a spot, and the defenseman that you're going to draft is not going to be impacting you next year. And 
the better you have in terms of forward prospect pool, the easier it is to make a trade if you deem that necessary next year. Believe it or not, guys, the St. Louis Cardinals will trade for a backup catcher at the trade deadline. Cool. And they will not have either Kisner or Herrera serving in that role. That's interesting. Um, it's hard to do this. We saw this at the deadline last year, whether it was with Contreras. He's not a backup, of course, but just trading for him as a catcher. E- even when he looked at, like, Christian Vasquez, who was traded, there was some other stuff that they had to deal with there in terms of him being really frustrated by that move. I think they would like to add a backup catcher if they can. Getting one, though, is harder than just saying, yeah, we're going to go out and get this guy. So I'll say I believe it just because I think they would like to add somebody to give them a real backup in that role down the stretch. I'm going to say not believe it because it'll be one of their two guys that they have in Memphis right now if Kisner continues to go this route and they'll they'll focus on making trades for other aspects of their team. And I was trying to look up what this Trez Barrera has been doing for Memphis um, but I, I believe it's going to be one of those two guys at yeah, Barrera 267 batting average, 500 slug, 833 OPS, two home runs, seven RBIs. He'll be the backup before I can see them making a trade for one. I, I think I'm going to believe it because I, I think they know just like with Kisner, that Barrera's ceiling is super low. Um, I, and I'm not saying you got to go out there and get like a Christian Vasquez, a guy that could be a starter on a team. But I, I think they need to add somebody. I mean, Kisner's just clearly not the guy. Not not good framing-wise. I think defensively, he's just okay. Um, I, I don't... They seem very low on Avon Herrera. And then, like I said, Barrera's got a low ceiling. I, I think they need to make a move for it. And I, I think they will. I, I think they may actually do it before July. I, I think in June... They may be exploring it, and you go, well, why would you make that kind of trade? The market's going to be high. I don't think the market would be that high for a backup catcher. On a bad team, they can trade somebody. I I, I think they make a move. I, I think they have to solidify it so they can, A, get Contreras more days off, B, get him more games at the DH spot so he has fresher legs, and C, just in case he gets hurt, they actually have somebody that they feel comfortable with behind the plate. Kisner's, Kisner has been one of the worst hitters in all of Major League Baseball so far this year. It's just, I'm I'm genuinely shocked by it. I think he's more talented than this. I don't understand what's happened with him because when you when you look at him, first of all, he looks like he should be better at baseball than he has been for the Cardinals. But then you look at his minor league numbers, he was always a pretty productive player when it came to his the hitting side of things. Now, there were questions about whether or not he was going to be good enough at framing or game calling, all of that stuff. That was reasonable. But we always thought he was at least going to be a capable hitter in the big leagues. And it just has not worked for whatever reason. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But he's not a good enough player right now to be a legitimate big leader. There, there are some guys that just cannot play in the bench role. I mean, Sosa was that guy. Uh, Jed Jerko was always that guy who would put up good numbers when they would start. But they just cannot, for whatever reason, stay in a rhythm if they are not playing every day. And I, I think Kisner falls victim to that because as you said, his numbers in the minors are good, but what's he doing in the minors? He's playing every day yep. here at the big league level. He's just never had a consistent run except for last year. And then last year just didn't really, even then when Yachty was healthy, it was more 50, 50. It just never was a consistent run. All right, guys, believe it or not, this comes from the six, three, six, the Cardinals will add at least one of Madison Bumgarner or Lance Lynn this year. Ugh. <laughs> Madison Bumgarner's not happening. I, I'm sure that person saw what we saw. Um, I'm going to say sure not, they did. I'm going to say not believe this one. I don't see Lance Lynn like 
the Cardinals will probably view that as, nope, we've, we've moved on from that move and we'll go a different route if they're going to go after a starting pitcher. So I'm going to say not believe this. I'm with Alex. I'm not going to believe it. One, Bumgarner's terrible. And two, there are better pitchers on the White Sox that the AL Central, if you want to keep an eye on something for the deadline and you're already excited for it, keep an eye on the AL Central because Eduardo Rodriguez is a guy that I would have some interest in. You look at... Uh, um, the White Sox, they're going to have arms. Like if they want to move from Giolito, that he's a guy that I would have some interest in. Like those are where the arms are going to come from if the Cardinals are going to make a move. It is probably in the AL Central, but I don't think it would be Lance Lynn. I agree with Alex. They've already done that, and I think they want something different. <coughs> I would be shocked if they made a move for either of these two players. This is more of what you have already. It, it This would be like adding Jay Happ or... Wade LeBlanc. John Lester, Wade LeBlanc. Everybody forgets about him. He was my You favorite. don't need that. You, you need higher end guys. All right, final thing here. Guys, believe it or not, the Cardinals win at least 7 of 10 on this upcoming West Coast road trip. Not believing that. I just, uh, you're in a, uh, that's a tough stretch there. I mean, that's talking about winning the series against the Dodgers, winning the series against the Giants, and then what, splitting with the Seattle Mariners? Splitting with San Fran, winning the Seattle series. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't see that. I, and I know that there was a piece on the post dispatch today talking about that. That maybe felt like the breakout offensively for the team. Great. You're going up against some tough pitching in this upcoming road trip. So I'm not believing it. Actually, I guess you'd have to win all three series now doing the math quickly in my head. Yeah. Um, two out of three, two out of three, three out of four. Yeah. Um, I'm believing it. I'm going to be optimistic. I, I think you actually sweep that series against San Francisco. Believe it. Well, now that's a bit uh, too far fetched for me. But I will say I'm going to – I will believe this because Seattle is scuffling. I think they can go in there and take two or three. It's going to be tough, but I think they can do it. I think they should be able to take three or four from San Francisco. I mean, I don't think San Francisco is a good baseball team at all. They just placed another starter on the IL. Uh, then the other one in the Dodgers. I've been loaning the Dodgers all year long. They're dealing with injuries as well. So I, I'll believe it. I, I can see the path where they do it. But it all starts in the Seattle series. I mean, they have to take two or three from Seattle. They've got to take advantage of a team that's scuffling. And I think the Cardinals are on the verge of turning it around offensively. Cardinals have been pretty good against Luis Castillo in in his career. The guys in the Cardinals lineup right now have an 830 combined OPS with a 285 batting average against Luis Castillo in his career. Um, Kirby is not a big strikeout guy. Same thing is true of Flexen as well. So they've they've got pitching matchups that are actually okay for the Cardinals, all things considered. San Francisco, as you mentioned, T-Bone has really been struggling. You get into that series against the Dodgers. You got Kershaw and Syndergaard as two of the three starters projected in that series as well. That's not necessarily the worst thing in the world for this team. I think you're actually set up okay. Now, you need to play better. This this 10-game stretch will be about the Cardinals far more than it is about the three teams that are on the schedule. These teams sound more imposing than they actually are. They're more name than game right now. You could say the same thing about the Cardinals. And now they've got to go out there and prove it, that they're actually going to be the team that we all expected them to be. Coming up next, speaking of the Cardinals being about game and not name, yesterday we saw what it looks like when they finally hit for power with runners in scoring position. We'll do it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. 
all season, one of the big frustrations for this Cardinals team has been, man, why are they not hitting with runners in scoring position? But Alex, to me, it's been even less about the batting average with runners in scoring position and more about the damage that they're doing when they've got runners in scoring position. Yesterday, they were seven for 15 in those scenarios, and they had doubles. Contreras hit one. You had O'Neill hit one. You had Carlson hit one. Edmund hit one. You have the Edmund triple, the home run by Edmund and Gorman with the grand slam as well. Man, you were doing damage when guys were on the bases. And in the current day and age, T-Bone has mentioned this since the day that he got on our show. It's all about slug, baby slug. It is so hard to go station to station in today's game because the pitching that you're going up against is so incredibly talented. So for the Cardinals this year, when they've got runners in scoring position, it's not just about checking what the batting average is in those scenarios. It's also seeing how much damage they're able to do in those situations. Yeah, and to me, it's also the pitchers that they're going to be going up against and doing it with. And I think that says a lot. Like, as, as exciting as yesterday was, it was against Madison Bumgarner, who was dfa less than 24 hours later. Yep. So uh, we've seen it go well, and we always cite the Toronto the uh, Blue Jays matchup with their pitchers, but we've also seen it go up against the Milwaukee Brewers' top pitchers and the Atlanta Braves' top pitchers, and that's where the biggest struggles came into play. And then, of course, you get into the Herman Marquez and the um, uh, what's Velasquez conversation with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah, they actually did pretty well against Toronto. T- Toronto, they they did really well yeah, against their we top-end pitchers. All optimistic. Then you got into the uh, Brave series, and that's where everything kind of went and to hell. That's why I'm I'm intrigued with this. Like you mentioned, they, they got a good history with Luis Castillo and what Seattle's going to be throwing out there. San Francisco might not have the best, but I don't know if they're going to see like a Logan Webb or not in this matchup. And then you've got the L.A. Dodgers, where, yeah, the L.A. Dodgers aren't the L.A. Dodgers they used to be, but it's still got some top talent. That's going to be a massive evaluation thing for me. I'm glad you mentioned against which pitcher they're doing it against because it is one thing to do it against Madison Bumgarner. It's another to do it against like a Luis Castillo. And, and yes, you do need to be looking at the slugging percentage and what they're doing there because it is slug baby slug. That's how you win in modern baseball. But you've got to do that against the top end pitchers. And that's what made that ex- that series against Toronto so exciting. But that can't be a one-off. That can't just be by the time we get to the end of the year, we look back and go, yeah, they actually did pretty good slugging against uh, teams when they had runners in scoring position. Oh, but really the only top-end arms that they really ever did it against was on opening day in that opening day weekend. Like, that can't be the case. They'll have to start slugging against some of the top-end arms that they see, and I I think they will. I I think this offense is built to do damage, and I know a lot of people, Lisa likes to point out they didn't hit in the postseason. I think that was just one of those moments where your your best bats went cold at the wrong time and it carried into the postseason. I think if you had Goldie and Arnato like they are right now in a postseason game going up against top arms, I think they would do damage to top-end pitchers, along with Wilson Contreras. Nolan Gorman's been just killing the baseball so far early in the year. I don't think it's going to be a problem for them moving forward much longer. To put in perspective how much that game changed their numbers with runners in scoring position, let me give you this. Going into yesterday, the Cardinals were batting 242 with a 350 slugging percentage with runners in scoring position. After the game yesterday, this is their entire season numbers after one day where they were awesome against Madison Baumgartner and their bullpen. They're now batting 262 with runners in scoring position with a 425 slugging percentage in those situations. Their slugging percentage went up 70 points after one day batting well with runners in scoring position. That's what this team needs to be. They need to be closer to that version of themselves. And you guys are absolutely right. It can't be a one-off. You cannot just do that against Madison Baumgartner and a terrible day by him 
in what has been a horrible, uh, what was really a horrible Diamondbacks career for him. But if you're able to sustain that a little bit, if you're able to capture that into a bottle, take it on the road to the West Coast with you, suddenly we could see the team that we were all anticipating. One of those players that we are all very excited about, especially after what we saw from him yesterday, was Nolan Gorman. We'll talk about him coming up in the BK and Ferrario Rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. This is exactly where you want to be listening to us. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the Bagel Loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. Guys, Nolan Gorman is 22 years old. He has an OPS over 1,000 this season. Yesterday, he reminded all of us of what that power can look like with the grand slam that he had. He is now third in Major League Baseball this year in slugging percentage on the season. His five home runs is top five in all of Major League Baseball. He has been everything that the Cardinals were hoping that he would be and then some. If this is the guy that he ends up being, we talked about before the season, how you can judge a lineup based on who's hitting like sixth and seventh for you in that lineup. He is probably your six-hole hitter. If they can have him there playing like this, and they can develop somebody that becomes a consistent player in that seven hole. This Cardinals team can be the offense that we all wanted them to be. They just got to get things going back on track at the same time because it felt like when Goldie and Arnado were hitting well at the beginning of the season, Contreras wasn't. And now that Contreras is hitting well, Arnado's had a little bit of a dry spell. Jordan Walker was hitting really well at the beginning of the year. Now he's gone a little bit cold. It feels like maybe he's getting back on track, though. This West Coast, West Coast trip. I don't want to put too much pressure on it, but it does feel like the time where this team can start to finally be, find some footing with with the traction all going in one direction at the same time. Yeah, if you can get Nolan Gorman going like that consistently, then there's two other areas that you're looking at, and Lars Nupar might fill the one. I'm looking at yeah. the two-hole to figure that out, but, I mean, again, for the way that he's been performing in terms of getting on base, I'm good with that production, and then, of course, Alec Burleson. And then, yeah, you're looking at seven and eight. If you get Jordan Walker hitting a little bit more, I mean, we've seen Tommy Edmond with the success over the last couple of games. It's the lethal lineup we all thought they could have, starting with that Toronto Blue Jays series, and you're right. Hopefully you can do that against a Luis Castillo, who's got an incredible ERA this season, and go on a little bit of a stretch here where you do it against Seattle and you do it against San Francisco and you do it against L.A. And you say, OK, but what are you concerned about anymore? Because for me, then it gets back to the pitching side of things. But for right now, I was so confident that it was going to be the same all season along with the offense and it hindered a little bit. That's where the main focus goes to right now. Yeah. I'm- if Gorman is this guy, then the offense should not have major struggles that it has shown early in the season because they will be one through six, eight deep lineup with whatever you get from Walker and whoever, whatever you get from that eight and nine spot 
O'Neal batting eighth would be a heck of an idea. Uh, but like you, you shouldn't have you shouldn't have the cold spell that the Cardinals just went through. If you have a one through six like this, because the one spot is either going to be Donovan or Newpar, depending on who's playing better. The two spots either going to be Newport or Burleson. You know three through five. And then if Gorman is this guy in the sixth spot, there's no reason the offense should go through the scuffles that it has gone through early on in the season. That's why, to your point, I do think there is some pressure of this needs to be the weekend or this needs to be the road trip where you find some footing. There will come a point in time, I believe, when we look back at that weird start to the season and say, man, remember when the Cardinals couldn't hit? Remember when they weren't cashing in on any of these runners and scoring position situations? And we'll view that as the outlier. We'll look back and say, man, that I don't know how that happened or why it happened, but I'm really glad we're not watching that version of the Cardinals any longer. And one of the main reasons I'm confident in that is because of the stat that I'm about to tell you. This season, Tommy Edmond, and this was even worse prior to yesterday, is three for 18 with runners in scoring position. That is a 167 batting average. Prior to yesterday, he was one for 16 in those situations. Brendan Donovan with runners in scoring position is one for eight with no extra base power. And he has more strikeouts than walks in those situations. Tyler O'Neill is also one for 13 with runners in scoring position with four strikeouts on the year. Those guys combined are five for 41, five for 41 with runners in scoring position. That's just not going to sustain. Those guys are better hitters than that. And over time, you'll start to see that correct, and we will start to see this offense take off in the way that we all expected it to. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up from 2 to 6 right here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.